0: Of your hand makes my folks react That it's only the thrill A me, girl My the a trap It's Gizzy girl.
1: Hello everyone Welcome to the B Side. We are a podcast for the Film Stage website. Here we talk about movie stars, not the movies that made them famous or kept them famous, but the ones they made in between. And today we're talking about a Yale grad talking about Angela Bassett, who you might remember lost the poll that made us do Jerry Butler. Though I'm, you know, I'm happy we did him. I'm with Connor O'Donnell. Connor, how are you? I'm great. Yeah. Uh, you know, in hindsight. Doing Gerard, I feel like an excuse to rewatch Dear Frankie, an excuse to talk about some weird movies, is definitely kind of an interesting, um, you know, I don't know, an interesting guy, an interesting career. Definitely
2: made so, me appreciate him, I think, a little bit more than I had before we won the episode. So, you know,
1: I, and I would urge- I'm glad we did it, too. Yeah, and I would urge those listening to check out Bilga Abiri's piece on Vulture called I Think I Love Gerard Butler, which I think he posted only like days after we released that podcast episode, So, which I thought was so – I think I tweeted about it. So definitely, if you have any continued interest in that, uh, definitely check out that piece. Because I think it does kind of – almost in gets to the essence of why Gerard Butler – you know, has an appeal, especially these days. Kind of something we taught touched on when we uh when we recorded. But anyway, Jerry's in the past, and this is the future, and this is the present, and the present is Angela Bassett, the one and only. We've been wanting to do this podcast for a while. I feel like we've been talking about her, uh, and her B sides and her stardom in general. I feel like since Fallout came out, right? How- Where she gives that great performance. Yeah,
2: she's I mean she's great in that movie and um I think you know that movie is kind of a pretty great indication of just like you, I feel like she takes a lot of like smaller supporting roles now and stuff like that so I think that's just an indication of like how much she can add with just very little on the screen you know what I mean um obviously I wish there was more of her but but it's a it's a testament to her I think um and her general talents and I think it's part of the reason I wanted to to cover her on this podcast just cuz like she's I guess you could debate whether or not she's a movie star i I would argue she she at least was for like a minute. um she definitely had like had like a little bit of a run um but i I just wanted to talk about her because I think as as just an actor she's uh she's super fascinating.
1: So we have this Slack channel uh, through the film for the film stage show, which if you're a Patreon supporter, you can have access to. And since the B side is still on that feed, it came up in a recent. You know, just we were discussing. Someone asked about the criteria of what makes a movie star. Obviously, I've done these almost movie star episodes, just a couple of them on Julie Styles and Josh Hartnett, uh, specifically. And I guess, yeah, it's a criteria we haven't really dug into too much on the show. I I think the way that I think of movie star is, right, like with Angela Bassett. She had a run in the mid-90s, right, where she was leading movies, right? Starring or co-starring in movies of different sizes, right? And some of them were hits, and she's above the title. And specifically, and this is a good kind of we'll get into her B-sides, I think the period of Angela Bassett movie star is what's love got to do with it to like the score, right? Like, which she's a supporting role. That's a great example. That's another movie, the score where she's like, not like fallout. She's not the star, but she kind of steals most of the scenes that she's in. But in between, that's like an eight year period. And in between those two movies, you have strange days, which is going to be our first B side vampire in brooklyn which is going to be our second b-side you have waiting to exhale which was a big hit in 1995 you have how stella got her groove back got her groove back which was a modest hit three years later she's also in contact if you remember that yep
2: yeah she's and, like the president's advisor or something like that
1: yeah yeah and um and then she's in music of the heart which was the uh actually her second west craven movie because west craven directed vampire in brooklyn and then finally, Supernova, which is our third B-side that we're going to talk about. Famous Bomb Supernova. I guess not famous. I don't know if anybody even knows about Supernova. I feel like that's I, one of those. Yeah, ones that, that's one of we'll those. We'll talk ones, about it. Yeah,
2: it's tough to gauge because I feel like that's what you uh,
1: bring up and people kind of remember it, but nobody like talks what about movie? it. Yeah. Otherwise, and then um, and then in 02, uh after the score came out, uh, which the score July. Two thousand and one, a block of Summer Blockbuster, the score. <laughs> what a time. Which is Robert, yeah, Robert De Niro, ever norton Um in o2 she makes a movie, uh, a John sales movie called Sunshine State, which will be our final B side. So Strange Strange Days, Vampire in Brooklyn, Supernova, and Sunshine State. Those are our focus, our four focused uh B-sides today. But that that period of time is where she's a movie star. That's how I think of it, right? You know, and obviously since then, she's she has led movies and been in movies. You know, she's, I think, the co-lead in Mr. 3000 with Bernie Mac, right? She's in the Tyler Perry movie. You know, she's the mother in Jumping the Broom, right? She's in stuff. Now, obviously, she's in the Black Panther. Uh, the first Black Panther movie, she'll be in Black Panther 2. She, she appeared in Avengers Endgame. So now she's in this kind of later career character actor phase. Like we mentioned last week, she was in Olympus Has Fallen. She sadly dies, spoiler alert, and London has fallen. And you know, so she's doing these kind of elder statesman, stateswoman type of roles. But just to get back to kind of put a button on the criteria, I think for eight years, Angela Bassett was a movie star. So when we when we do these B sides, I think that's kind of a qualifier. And like someone like Josh Hartnett, right, to bring it back to the almost movie star of it all. I think you can make the argument was he a movie star? Maybe he was. I when I just look at his career, it seems like he never on his own or le- like in co-leading led a successful movie past the movies that made him a star, right? So like after Pearl Harbor, after Black Hawk Down, which is more of an ensemble movie anyway, he did star in movies, but none of them really were overly successful, right? You know what I mean? So I think when you look at Angela Bassett, you know, she got her groove back. That was a hit. She's certainly one of the biggest leads in Waiting to Exhale. Both Terry McMillan movies, Um and I think, I don't know, both – Pretty good. I was, you know, yeah, try to rewatch a lot of stuff. I know, Connor, you rewatch Waiting to Exhale. I, I was, I had never actually seen Waiting to Exhale. I, I I
2: hadn't, yeah, no, I had neither actually. And I,
1: yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, big hit made 67 million domestic, 82 worldwide in 1995. Um, like I said before, Terry McMillan, it was an adaptation of one of her books that would also. How Stella got her groove back was also an adaptation. Didn't Stella did not make as much money, but still was a modest hit. And also, you know, the future film premiere debut of Tay Dang. Diggs, which I mean, that in itself should be celebrated. We'll find as a way a to cover come at some point. <laughs> Whether <laughs> oh, it's an almost see, movie he would star be, or a see that's okay. he would be in my mind, he'd be a perfect almost, almost movie star because yeah, we'll cover you know he we'll has for sure. But what do you what do you with the criteria, Connor? I mean, what do you think? Do you think? Do you approach it the same way I do? Do you think of it differently? How do you I, come at it?
2: Well, I'll say this. I don't, yeah, I kind of play fast and loose with the criteria in terms of like, there's not a specific set of rules that everybody needs to meet. Cause obviously like certain people we've covered on this podcast are gimmies, right? Like a Leo or a Tom Cruise or whatever, like they're very clearly movie stars.
1: Right. So like, there's no, well, like we're, we're no like Angelina Jolie is going to come up soon. Right, right? right. She is of course, yeah, you know. Um, a or like star. Sandra Bullock, right? Movie stars. Exactly, right? exactly. So
2: I think, but I to your point, I think if you have to, I don't think about it in terms of criteria, but if I have to like, if if I'm ever in a situation where we're talking with people and I have to make a case for somebody, my case is usually very similar to what you just said. It's like they had a run and like the run was, was successful, right? Like, and granted, obviously, peppered in that run are B-sides like we're going to talk about. Um, but I also think, in my mind, and I never, you know, this this is something I never call out, but like I feel like awards are uh, also a clear signifier. Like if someone has achieved a general, like n- f- you know, either just general uh, acclaim on an award circuit that puts them on the map, I think they're there. I think that's like a thing that puts them in the general consciousness.
1: Um, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that that's I don't know that I that's an interesting point. I don't know that I give that as much thought, but I guess it's a good point because I guess just naturally the award circuit itself is in a way its own, you know, coming out part. Yeah. And it
2: can, and it, I mean, it can also certainly be kind of fickle. I mean, there are people that have been nominated for Oscars years ago that you're like, what? And then they disappear. Right. So it's not, like I said, it's not necessarily a hard and fast rule, but I think those types of things combined for somebody like Angela Bassett, um, are, are what make her stick out to me because right? she, and then I think that the third thing that I think of is just like, has this person stuck around in, in like consciousness, right? I would argue someone like Julia Stiles or Josh Hartnett have not, right? Like now Angie, Angie Bassett might not be leading movies anymore,
1: but she's like still around and still doing things. So like, I, th- yeah. And I would say, I mean, one thing, one thing I have in my notes is like, Now in culture, right, she's getting, I feel like, getting this second kind of moment, you know, and that is in the Mission Impossibles and the Black Panthers, right, where I think you have these, maybe these younger, you know, this younger generation who are now making the movies, kind of going back and being like, yeah, we love Angela Bass, right, right? and she's getting these, and I do think that makes me happy. I will say, because we're not going to talk about it. Um, I watched what's Love got to do with it for the first time so did I, yeah. uh, for this podcast uh, because that is the movie uh directed by Brian Gibson about the life of Tina Turner and her uh you know uh, Tina Turner still alive, but Ike Turner her her I guess ex-husband, um but it's really mostly about the period when they were married and collaborating together. I think Ike Turner passed away in uh, two thousand and seven. Um, she was nominated for an Oscar for that movie in 1993. Uh, as was Lawrence Fishburne, who plays Ike Turner. Um, it is a pretty standard biopic, but um, it does excel more than most of that ilk. I-, I did find myself incredibly compelled. They certainly present Ike Turner as a just. Just the like, most monstrous. Like I mean, there are some scenes, you know, of abuse and rape that are just. Now Tina Turner, Tina Turner went on record, I think, in an interview with Oprah, not even too long ago from now, and kind of said that the movie t- took a lot of liberties and what have you. But the movie is based on her own book, right? Right. So, it's based on Ikea. We were, so we're, like
2: you have to imagine, at least right. at least, you know, I mean, given the degree of like just sheer monstrosity that that Lawrence Fishburne's Ike Turner is in the movie. If yeah. if two percent of it is true, it's still horrible. It's like <laughs> well, crazy that's what we were talking about. That.
1: Yeah, off mic, we were like, if fifty percent of this is not exaggerated, it's still it's still insane, horrible. You know, and
2: again, not in a way that's like, you know, not in a way that's grotesque or which I I think the movie still does a pretty good job with it. Where you're you're it's very it's still very compelling. You know, in terms of like creating her situation and the environment that she kind of needs to like rise above and all that. Um, yeah, I also I, I would agree with you. I think the movie's pretty standard fare as biopics go. But I do think the two of them really are the thing that like elevate it. Um, so oh, sure. if you haven't seen it, you know, it's it's worth watching. I think just to like, I, I think honestly, also just to make the case for like, if, if you're still curious as to why we want to cover Angela Bassett. Um,
1: she's she's so amazing in the movie. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, and we were this is another thing we were talking about kind of before we pressed record. She is one of these people, when you go back and watch these mid-90s movies, right, how did she not become an icon for female empowerment that the whole world got behind? Not that I guess she wasn't, and maybe this is pre-internet talking, but like, Waiting to Exhale, That's that famous gif that you've definitely seen on social media of Angela Bassett walking away from the car on fire, that's from Waiting to Exhale, Yeah. right? Strange Days, and we'll get into it, her whole character is this amazing yeah you know and i hate using the phrase badass i hate it but truly in strange days she is this ultimate badass smart you know kick ass fighting smartest smartest character in the movie saves ray vines's ass 45 times you know like if that movie comes out today I just think it's, I think she gets, you know, her own, I don't know, salt. You know what I mean? In 1997. She's at
2: least certainly, if that movie comes out today, she's like a, she's a Furiosa-esque meme. You know what I mean? Right. Thank you. Furiosa is a great example. It's that kind of thing. She is, I mean, I guess let's just get into it, right? Strange Days?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the only thing, the last thing I just say about what's love got to do with it, you know, we, we try to do a little bit of research for these things. I found this great clip, um, where, uh, Angie Bassett was on Andy Cohen, and a caller uh, asked her a question about did she ever feel she got robbed for either not getting a nomination or not winning her Oscar, for her Oscar nomination.
0: Hi, my question's for Angela. Okay. Um, As one of the greatest actresses ever, have you ever felt robbed when it came to Oscar nominations or winnings? (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you have? Oh, yeah. Was there a specific, was it What's Love? It was yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Who won that one? Holly Hunter.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, for the for piano? For the piano. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right.
0: playing a mute. <laughs> 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 playing the piano. Oh, I mean, she was fine, it was fabulous. But let me tell you, <laughs> that <laughs> dancing, that body, that emotional, that whatever, I, I just, Mm. yeah it called on a lot yeah
1: yeah getting getting to strange days 1995 uh it is a movie directed by by her a legend herself Catherine bigelow um comes out in october october 6th 1995 um a healthy budget of 42 million dollars especially for then screenplay from james cameron himself and jay cox Kind of a I think a passion project of sorts for James Cameron kind of gives it to Catherine Biglow to some degree who is coming off a of point break. Yeah, I think he and, you know, started it, some I career success. He, I
2: think he started cultivating the screenplay in like the in like the mid 80s, like right around Terminator.
1: Yeah, and then you know, I think, you know, um something about this movie that is very prevalent is you know, the LA riots happen only, you know, years you know, before this movie comes out. And so I think in the screenwriting phase, the addition of that kind of expanded idea of the riots and racism and, you know, structural and systemic prejudice is built into what then becomes the final, um, you know, version of this movie and really helps. So here's the thing. I always like this movie. I saw it a long time ago. I rewatched it only a few years back, and I rewatched it to record this episode. It's officially on my favorite films list. It's it I love this movie. It's definitely got some, I don't know, narrative problems, we'll say, but as a social commentary slash sci-fi epic slash neo noir, I, I this is one of the most inventive movies. I've seen in recent, you know, re- rewatch though, maybe I've seen recently. Um, how'd you feel about it, Connor?
2: No, I, yeah, I loved it. I, I had, uh, I had never, it was one of those movies I caught like pieces of, you know, so I'd, I'd never actually like seen it front to back before. Um, and yeah, I, I really loved it as well. I think, I mean, I, not to get ahead of ourselves, I do really like Sunshine State, but I do think maybe this is probably the best of the four movies will talk about um the yeah i don't know the the world building and and just i guess to do it real quickly basically the conceit of the movie is that you know it's a it's a not i guess at the time not too distant future because it's pre-y2k it's like december 29th um, yeah it's like the last two days it's like the last days of, of, of the millennium basically
1: And uh, so you—it's right before—it's right before the millennium. Yeah. (laughs) So it's right before that, and at the end of the millennium.
2: Yeah. When he shows, when Will Smith shows up at the end, I thought it was a little weird. But, um, yeah, agreed. agreed. No, no, no. But basically, there's this—you know—so that's one piece of the puzzle. There are all these riots going on because of you know sort of pre Y two K hysteria, as well as sort of a what's seemingly meant to be just a continuation of all of the fraught race relations in LA, uh, in the, in the nineties. So it's sort of all of that coming to a head in this, in this pre Y2K environment. Then on top of that, there is this sort of this technology basically that allows and correct me if I get this wrong, Dan, basically it allows people to wear these, you know, essentially these like neuro headsets that record what they're seeing, what they're feeling, and then they essentially get recorded onto uh, onto discs, right? And then those discs are can then be played back. and if you're wearing the same headset, you feel it's it's sort of like virtual reality to the extreme, right? Like it's basically you you feel all of it. you can you can basically kind of recall everything uh, that the person who recorded the images. Uh, undergoes right
1: now yeah and, yeah go ahead Oh, yeah, no, no, no. and
2: so uh you know we're introduced to ray fines who plays lenny uh his name's lenny nero
1: lenny nero yeah, that's a good love. that's
2: like a good neo-noir name great yeah, great neo noir uh, name, name yeah uh but basically he plays lenny nero he is a former cop who is now sort of just on the down and out he's essentially the equivalent of a drug dealer because these uh these sort these tapes are considered like a form of narcotic, basically their contraband. Right. Is that?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously illegal and he is peddling in these, you know, brain rides essentially. Yeah.
2: You, you. I almost, I kind of went in my head to like, and like to, I, I can't imagine that, uh, that Scott Frank and Steven Spielberg didn't take a little bit of that for that little middle portion of minority report. Um,
1: Right, right he goes, right, he goes right. to
2: that friend who like basically does the, the same thing um but essentially, anyway, so lenny uh is visited you know it's it on on top of this other conceit is just also now this like thick heavy layered uh neo noir essentially, and Lenny is visited by uh a friend of his ex uh who is Juliette Lewis, who is now with michael wincott um who's essentially like a mu- a manager, right? Like a music manager. Yeah,
1: well, yeah, he's a, he's a music manager, but, uh, and also probably commentary at the time, like a lot of music managers, especially in the 90s, a criminal, right? Like a corrupt, yeah. terrible person, you know? So he's just a generally bad dude mixed up with the wrong people who Lenny obviously hates because he still loves Faith, who's Juliet Lewis, who is positioned as the femme fatale in the movie you know in the film noir of it all
2: so essentially uh lenny is given a tape by uh by juliette lewis's friend and um or sorry is contacted by juliette lewis's friend she's in trouble she's being chased by two cops which are vincent sinofrio and uh, william fickner Buffalo
1: Zone, william fickner fickner factor yeah yeah
2: um the I mean, it is kind of funny because now it almost, given the the types of roles they, they've both played over the years, it feels on the nose to cast them, but also in my head. I was oh, like,
1: right. Yeah. The minute you see them, you're like, these guys are definitely really evil, bad. Yeah, guys. evil cops. Yeah.
2: But at the same time, I'm also like, they're perfect people to play evil cops. Um, so that's kind of it. And he she contacts him. She tells him she's in trouble. And what what proceeds to unfold is some version of a relatively standard sort of, you know pulpy noir plot right where lenny kind of has to get to the bottom of what's going on figure out who's behind it there is also a serial killer plot that unfolds on the side of it it's very there's a lot of threads that are that are laid in the movie and most of them get wrapped up some of them kind of get wrapped up more sloppily than others um but in the in the midst of this all is his uh his friend and confidant and driver and bodyguard mace Played by Angela Bassett, and she's basically, you know, an awesome version of of uh, of like his girl Friday kind of thing. But uh, she basically is his conscience. She's his anchor. She's the person, like you said, Dan. She's like the smartest person in the room throughout the whole movie.
1: Yeah. Um. She re- she refuses to wear these, you know uh headsets and kind of doesn't like anything that Lenny's doing, but obviously has a certain amount of feeling for him that gets kind of expanded as the movie goes on and you find out more about their relationship. But yeah, she serves as the moral compass of the whole picture, especially, you know, in terms of Lenny. Uh and yeah, we find out more about her past, but she is introduced as this driver and kind of a bodyguard, right? That's, she has the ability to fight for herself and defend others while also, you know, trying to help her kind of strung out, wrung out friend, you know, that's, that's, you know, and she gets, of course, embroiled in everything, although she's doesn't really want to because of her feelings for Lenny. So,
2: yeah. And I, I mean, I think they have pretty good chemistry. Um, I think the biggest thing that this movie brought to my attention in terms of Angela Bassett is her physicality as like a budding action star in this movie is great. Right. And it does sort of, you know, I I would imagine, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to see, but like, I would imagine that that time in her career, that window has closed, but it's, it is a shame almost that we, we didn't get, uh, you know, mo- action movie star uh, Angela Bassett for for a period of time because she, right. she clearly in this movie she definitely has the chops for it and and is really well really
1: awesome. Yeah, and it speaks. to I mean, look, it also speaks to the economy and the market and the assu- the assumption of 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 that economy and market of the time where you know when you watch what's love got to do with it, you know she's playing Tina Turner. It's an obvious biopic, right? It's such a physical performance. She gets cast in another very physical performance that comes out only two years later in a movie, Strange Days, which is a huge flop, right? Cost $42 million, part of a Lightstorm Entertainment deal with Fox at the time, makes $8 million, right? Essentially sidelines Catherine Bigelow's career for half a decade. She makes an indie movie called The Weight of Water And then gets money from National Geographic to make K-19 The Widowmaker, which also flops in 2002. And really doesn't really come back until The Hurt Locker, right, which is 08. So, you know, this movie was not good in the moment for Catherine Bigelow. And I have to imagine, you know, it couldn't have been very good for Angela Bassett. That being said, it's such a bold vision. You can understand how... The Oscar nomination, the physical performance in "What's Love Got to Do with It" kind of gets her the role, and then you see her giving this great performance. Nobody sees it, and also, look, this is the mid '90s. Not that it, not not that things are perfect now, but I can't imagine studios, and this is we know now, it's short-sighted thinking, thought that a African American female lead could bring people to an action franchise, right? I mean, especially they're pointing to Strange Days, you know, whatever it is, as evidence, you know, faulty or not. So then she ends up making, you know, movies that are more in line with what people wanted to watch, what people thought people wanted to watch in a world of movie like Soul Food, right? Mm -hmm. They, You know, Terry McMillan books. Well, once again, Waiting to Exhale, big hit. This same year, only months later, 1995, Waiting to Exhale is a big hit. Strange Days is a big bomb. And then only three years later, she gets her groove back, right, with young, hot Tate hey, Diggs. And that also performs relatively well. So I think you can you can see how, you know, it happened to her where then all of a sudden by 01, she's Robert De Niro's girlfriend in the score, you know, who's like a million years older than her. You know what I mean? So it's a shame. It's totally a shame. And even like, look, I love Contact. Um, and I love Jodie Foster in contact, but I would love if I would love had it been Angela Bassett as the lead in contact, because even that movie, you know, she, you know, it's an she's an astronaut, whatnot. It's not quite as kind of physical in terms of choreography and stuff, but it's more of an actiony performance, right? So, you know, to her, for her to get saddled as like the fourth lead in that movie or whatever. That's, that's almost a shame in itself. So yeah, I mean, look, you can't go back and rewrite it, but it would be nice to see if this movie had made a hundred million dollars, you know, what, what might have happened. I mean, for not just for Angela Bassett's career, but for Catherine Bigelow's totally. career, you know. And look, Ray Vines, you know, talented white guy actor that he is, he's in English space in like two seconds after this. Right. So he was he was fine. And you have to I mean,
2: the other thing too, I mean, you mentioned this sort of coming on the heels of what's love got to do with it in terms of the physicality but like there's also something here to me that feels kind of remarkable with like her seemingly right so she she's in what's love got to do with it it's kind of her coming out party a little bit gets nominated for an oscar and what a heel turn this feels like in a really awesome way cuz it's like she goes from being you know a, a an abused uh you know an abused Tina Turner that then sort of blossoms and comes into her own to straight up just a no not like she's so no nonsense in this movie and it's great like and um and it i think that's the thing that is then sort of run as a thread throughout the remainder of her career because there that's the thing to me that she's so wonderful at is just is the no nonsense like and um and it's a thing that I, I think people might see it as a crutch. Cause I think you could potentially look at it as sort of a, like a one lane that she kind of sticks in, but it's something that I think she, she brings to to certain movies that she's in that few other performers do. And that's, it, it's such an interesting quality of hers.
1: Yeah. And, and, and also, you know, I think that's such, I hear what you're saying and I, uh, about the crutch part of it, but that's so unfair. And we 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 talked about this when we talked about Denzel, right? Where there's this kind of lingering criticism of Denzel of, oh, he's always playing himself. And it's a similar thing where I just, that stuff is patently untrue. When you watch, and once again, I keep bringing this movie up. It's not one of our B-sides, but just as, just as an example, when you watch Waiting to Exhale, she is playing no nonsense in her reaction to essentially getting dumped by her husband. But then, you know, three scenes later breaking down and, you know, relying on her friends. Right. Uh, and doing both fluidly, it feels like one person doing this in a way that's very natural, very relatable. Like we've all in the same day been stubborn and confident and then totally vulnerable within an hour, within an hour. Right. So I think, you know, her being, you know, the tough chick, quote unquote, in a movie like Fallout, where she's got three scenes, of course. That's the one yes, That's the like one
2: thing she's doing. Yes. Like, she's
1: playing that note. She's playing it well. But in and even some of these movies that we'll talk about, you know, we'll get to Vampire Brooklyn, they might not be great movies, but she's playing different notes pretty impressively. And even like the movies we won't talk about, Music of the Heart, right? She's playing a principal of a school, right? Like, she, her career, and this is one thing that, one of the many things that's great about doing these, these episodes. I feel like I was kind of discovering Angela Bassett in a, in a, in a larger way. Like, and I've seen a lot of these movies, but to rewatch them and to watch ones I hadn't seen, you gain a whole new respect. And then look, that's what we were saying about Gerard Butler last week. Right. I mean, you, you dig into these people and even if they're not your favorite actor, like a Gerard Butler, let's say you still, when you watch the B sides and the C sides and the D sides and these things, you see the different avenues they've gone down and it does give you a whole new respect. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, look, strange days. I, I don't want to spoil it cause I, I would urge people to go Definitely. see it. Um, we haven't mentioned Tom Sizemore is also in the movie who gives kind of a crazy performance. Yeah, and Michael um,
2: Wincott, uh, for those familiar, you know, from like Robin Hood, uh, Prince of Thieves, um, Count, of Count of Monte Cristo. He has a really great role in What Just Happened. Um, a, kind of a personal favorite of, of ours a little bit as a as a character actor. Um, he is full Wincott in this movie. So whatever you know oh, yeah. about Michael His Wincott. name
1: is Philo Gant. Okay. <laughs> and do you know, I'm just, I'm looking as we're talking about it. I obviously have uh, Strange Days stuff up. Do you know who was in the running to play Philo Gantz, uh before it became Wincott? It feels uh it feels like it you will never guess this. It feels like it should have been James Spader. Bono. Oh god. I can I tell you, I kind of would have loved to have seen that. When you think about the character, like in his look. Yeah, no, he yeah, it makes kind of a little bit of sense. Definitely. And then in the running before it became uh fines uh, for Lenny Nero was Andy Garcia. Which probably also would have been great.
2: Fines is, I think Fines is pretty. I think Fines is pretty great. He's in pretty stuff. great. He's pretty great. He does a really good job. He does this thing, and I mentioned this to you when I was watching it, um, and I'll just be brief about it. He does this thing with his accent that I can't tell if, because he's a British guy and he's honing in on an accent that he can hold, and he, and he holds it well and it's fine. Um, it's kind of nasally and weasely. Um, and it sounds to me very similar to similar to what uh, Tim Roth does in
1: Reservoir Dogs. Um, yeah, it's it's stringy. Yeah, I, the word I kept coming it's back stringy. to was stringy, yeah, and I don't. You know, that's his whole performance is kind of he's, he's like a little he's like a noodle.
2: Yeah, he's like a he's sort of like a. It's very similar to like a a a De Niro in in Mean Streets kind of thing. It's like a very it feels right, it right. feels of that uh, of that ilk.
1: But um, De Niro, the my maybe my favorite line read in any movie ever from mean streets i'm gonna bail <laughs> gonna... but um but anyway no and yeah then, we won't we yeah, won't spoil, we won't spoil strange you yeah, don't spoil it. uh but definitely i just the one thing out. i wanted to say that me and you agree just disagree on i think i love juliette lewis's performance in strange days i generally uh have come to find that I kind of love Juliet Lewis. I, I like. I just. I think. So whatever she's doing in most of the movies she makes, ever since she got an Oscar nomination for *Cape Fear*, which is almost. I feel like she's doing. You know, she's you're so young in that movie, yeah. which, if you go back and watch the movie, is so disgusting. So I. Uh, that's a whole nother thing, but, um, her just weird thing that she does, not to like. We just talked about not putting people into these corners. Now I'm like totally doing that with Juliet Lewis, but her, her like weird loopy, stressed out thing that she does, you know, California with the K strange days, the way of the gun. I don't know. It works. I think she is such an interesting.
2: Performer. Yeah. I mean, I generally like Juliet Lewis. Um, I just think there, and it's not really her fault in this movie, but I think there are certain ways the characters written that, uh, that, Sort of demands that she give a kind of stilted performance in certain parts. I don't want to dive into it too much or spoil too much because I definitely encourage people to watch the movie, uh, and find out why. But um, but yeah, I I generally I I don't love her in this movie in particular. I think also because there's the way the character is written. Doesn't really allow for any reasonable uh, explanation as to why Ray Fiennes is so hung up on her, and that's a thing that Angela Bassett keeps kind of going back to him on. Is like you gotta get over, it. you know, it's in the past, yada yada yada. And as a viewer, I just feel like there's not much that allows me to be like, oh no, I get it, you know.
1: Um, yeah, I think just putting a button on the whole thing. I agree with you. There is that element of you're wondering why he. Cares about her so much and all that stuff and and whatnot. I do think with the Angela Bassett character, there is a nice synchronicity as you find out more about all of the main characters with that kind of feeling of being stuck in an emotion with in a feeling with somebody. And I also think it's a noir thing, right? I, I, I like how much there's a couple of things that I think they keep kind of in the tradition of noir that I like. Lenny Nero gets beat the shit kicked out of him many times throughout the movie, a lot, yeah, which I yeah. enjoy, and I think with his kind of constant feeling the need to rescue or be with the Juliette Lewis character, that's also very common in a lot of noirs from the, you know the '40s and the '50s. So, I think when you think about it from a genre homage standpoint, it kind of works and. When you bring in Mace, the Angela Bassett character, it even makes more sense. That being said, I think from a purely viewer level, it is a little hard to wrap your head around. No doubt about it. Um, uh, So, yeah, I think we both, you know, that I agree with you. I think Strange Strange Days probably is the best of these four we'll talk about. So, high recommend from both of us. Um, And, yeah, Vampire in Brooklyn, that same year and uh also kind of a flop as we kind of mentioned before waiting to exhale is the other movie from 95 that angela bassett makes that one's a hit vampire brooklyn and strange days are both underperformers vampire brooklyn directed by wes craven the man himself starring eddie murphy angela bassett uh kadeem hardison a bunch of other people and yeah, I mean, just to, I'll just do it. it. It's the Dracula tale, right? And I'll just jump into it quickly. They essentially take the voyage of the Demeter, right? And they they spin it so you have this abandoned ship that crashes into a port in Brooklyn. The Watchers, the 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 port keepers, uh, John Witherspoon and his I think nephew Kadeem Hardison, they see the ship crash. It like destroys their little house. It looks abandoned when they, when uh, I think John Witherspoon goes to check it out and come to find the only survivor, not unlike from the novel Dracula, where the ship comes into England from Transylvania, is this vampire, in this case named Maximilian, played by Eddie Murphy. There's voiceover in the beginning where they kind of rewrite the story, which I appreciated. He's basically a vampire coming from the Caribbean. He's the, he's, by his account, he's the last like full vampire in the world. And he's coming to Brooklyn because there's a woman who is half vampire and she doesn't know it. And in order to make her his, he has to find her and seduce her, you know, not unlike the classic Bram Stoker tales. Right. And so I appreciate the cultural spin on the source material. I I did appreciate the opening to the movie but then what happens and this is it was criticized of this at the time and it kind of still makes sense to this day. Tonally it's all over the place. It's not really a comedy. It's not really a horror movie. Um I get scared really easily and I was I did not find myself ever really shivering in my boots in this one. That being said, it's not, you know, there's not a lot of laughs to be had either. Connor, had you seen this before?
2: Yeah. So I had seen, yeah, I had seen it sort of on and off. I had a friend in grade school who was a big Eddie Murphy fan and so anytime I was over his house for like a sleepover or something like that, this and the golden child were always on in like pretty constant rotation. I think along with like Beverly Hills cop, but, um, it, yeah, it doesn't, it's not really good at either of the very good at either of the two things that it attempts. It's okay. Like I do think, I think a lot of the makeup effects that come up are fun, right? They're not scary, but they're like kind of fun in like a nostalgic way sort of, um, all the Kadeem Hardison stuff with, he basically, Kadeem Hardison becomes Eddie Murphy's Renfield, essentially, right? He, like, turns him into a ghoul pretty early on in the movie. And then the rest of the movie, Kadeem Hardison is basically d- decomposing in front of our eyes. And there's a lot of broad comedy that that's played for um, that I think, you know, is somewhat effective, somewhat unaffected. But I th- I think is, at least, was my favorite part of the movie, Um so you you do kind of wish it shifted into one of those two gears, I think a little more confidently. Um and yeah, I think with Angela Bassett right in the middle there as kind of the as kind of the straight man, as it were, um she's fine. I think she's fine for the role. She's not particularly miscast or anything like that. I just it I think the movie kind of underserves her pretty, pretty crazily. Granted, to be fair, it's not necessarily her movie, right? It's Eddie Murphy's movie. Um, But it does spend enough time on her that I, she's essentially, she's this uh, detective um, along with, uh, what is his name? Alan Alan, Payne. Alan Payne, right? Whose name in this movie is
1: Detective Justice. Right.
2: And she, they tried real hard with that one. Um, And she is Detective Rita Vedder. And basically, she's sort of among the NYPD, a little bit of a weirdo. Um, And you don't really know why. And she sort of starts basically uncovering things about her, her past. And it's revealed very early on in the movie that she is this half vampire, half human woman that, uh, that Eddie Murphy's Maximilian is searching for. Right. So for a minute, like, and I wrote this in my notes, like with a question, like Angela Bassett, vampire cop. Right. 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 and, And I, and I kind of like, Wish the movie was that a little bit. Well, and even
1: yeah, and the poster itself—if you know—if you're listening now, if you pull up the poster just on Google Images, it kind of seems more like that. She's her and Eddie Murphy are right there, you know, over like a silhouette of Brooklyn or New York or whatever. And she's got her head up, look, looking like she's loving it. And Eddie Murphy looks like he either just bit her or is about to. Yeah, she's like. Seems like she's she's a vampire. Yeah, it seems like she's a vampire.
2: Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's all neck in the poster. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's a little, it, I don't know. It's, it's weird because you just, th- you, the movie seems like it would do more with that. It doesn't even honestly it underserves her in the other way. Cause it just, it also doesn't even present her as sort of a, a super competent detective really ever. Um, well, and yeah,
1: you mentioned before people, the other NYPD, like, you know, cops regard her as a weirdo. And I think it maybe speaks to this movie's ultimate decisions upon collaboration where you never get a sense of why. There's never a moment where she's this like, there's a reason why she's considered a weirdo before there's like a vampire in the picture. And it's a little strange. You would almost expect there to be some sort of indication of, oh, she's this great, you know, detective who like like monk or something who has this, you know, otherworldly ability to investigate and all the other cops think regard her as strange but you don't have that exposition instead she is just regarded as strange and her partner alan payne is like the only only defender who essentially and this is basically playing like the jonathan harker character he's like the other guy as maximilian uh the eddie murphy villain starts to try to seduce angela bassett and that's the thing i mean this movie from an angela bassett point of view seems to kind of even though she's so central to the plot sideline her in the edit room. Right. It just seems like she's left yeah. with not much to do, which is strange because she is the female lead in the movie.
2: She's also the, she's the only Oscar winner in the movie. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like well, Oscar, Oscar nominee. nominee yeah, in the movie. yeah. Sorry. Uh, should have been Oscar winner. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, but it, yeah, it's very it's very strange. I mean, like I said, it's not. I I get it a little bit because it's not exactly even really pitched as her movie, so that's fine. That said, on its face, this movie doesn't feel like a like a what were you thinking kind of thing. Like this movie's got like a like a four point five on IMDb, and that feels a little low. Even I mean, it's like you said, it's not very scary. It's not very funny, but it's also not. And I mean, in my opinion, it's not like offensively bad or anything like that. It's just like so middling that you're especially with the pedigree of you know angela bassett eddie murphy and wes craven who after this does scream right and captures that like that uh that humor and horror all together really nicely in a way that this almost feels like a warm-up for him totally <laughs> or something. no totally uh but um but yeah y- you had mentioned in off mic that like the Murphy brothers, uh, the Murphy brothers, who both you know co- are co credited as writing this, along with a couple other writers, um, initially wanted to make like a straight horror, and then Wes Craven yeah. was the one that kind of was like, let's lighten it up a little
1: bit. I, yeah, I think basically Eddie Murphy wanted to play a straight villain. Charlie Murphy is one of the credited screenwriters, and I think he, Charlie Murphy, in an interview mentioned that. was initially going to be straight horror and in the development process wes craven basically convinced eddie murphy and charlie murphy that um there needed to be a little bit more of a character to the maximilian vampire you know character so they added some little comedy bits what's funny is the humor's it's just pretty broad anyway like he kills these italian mobsters in the beginning and kadeem hardison's like don't eat me if you want to eat. I can go get you some fried chicken down the street. And Eddie Murphy's like, no, I'm full. I just had Italian, right? Like, there are those right. types of jokes. So,
2: And that one of those mobsters is, what's his name? Uh, Mitch Pileggi, who plays Skinner.
1: Oh, right, 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 yeah. yeah. And so, that's it. I mean, like you were mentioning, most of the comedy beats come from Kadeem Hardison, right? Angela Bassett herself plays it very straight. Um, Eddie Murphy's mostly the villain, except for a couple of quips, All of which are in the trailer. The trailer sells this movie like it's an Eddie Murphy comedy, though it's really not. Um, It's interesting. In in my research, uh, Eddie Murphy did a Rolling Stone interview in 2011, and they asked him about Vampire Brooklyn, and he blamed the failure of the movie on the wig. He basically said the minute people saw him wearing the long hair wig, they were just totally out. And then he also... Really? Yeah. And he said also he connects... You were mentioning the Golden Child earlier... He connects the – even though The Golden Child made a lot of money, it was a failure as compared to his other mega hits in the 80s. He said that his daughter – they were going to watch The Golden Child and his daughter rebelled against the idea because um, because she was like, are you going to be wearing that little hat the whole time? And – Eddie Murphy was like, yeah, uh, and so the daughter didn't of... want to watch the movie. So, basically, things that are on Eddie Murphy's head that are not natural, Eddie Mur- Murphy clearly he just, thinks.
2: He automatically
1: rolls uh, it out. Hurt the box office to his movie. I just think it's interesting that he thinks the wig was the problem. I mean, I kind of like the wig. I don't know.
2: No, I and I actually even generally like him in the. The movie i think he's like based i mean again he's not that funny and he's not that scary but i do think and this also might just be like baseline level murphy as well he's charismatic like he's charming like sure i will say like Wes craven's instincts are kind of right in that regard i think making the dracula character not not necessarily seductive but like actually charming like funny and and somebody that that, you know, if he is going to seduce his prey, would be like, oh, I like this guy. Right. Like that's all I think. Uh I think that's all on display here. Like I think he's pretty good. And I think Bassett is the right fit for it too. I just think they're I think they're both kind of just stuck in this movie that that should be one or the other. Like it should be either the studio comedy that probably the people who later put Eddie Murphy in uh, in makeup in the movie. Right. Uh, right. He po- he pops up a couple times doing that.
1: Well, right, it. and I guess that's the other thing. Nutty Professor comes out the next year and is a big hit, and I think this is the first movie where he's playing different. I guess that's not true, right? He must play different characters in. Coming well, there's to Coming America, to America, right? Yeah, Coming yeah, to America. He,
2: so it's it's a thing that he does. It's you know, yeah. But, but
1: a he, Nutty Professor is obviously the kind of coup de gras of him doing that, right? And then yeah. you have stuff like Norbit and whatnot down the road, but. Um, and then even yeah, in the trailer for Vampire in Brooklyn, you have the Eddie Murphy and Eddie Murphy and right. Eddie Murphy. and you know like he plays like a preacher and he plays this like Italian Guido character, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's not much and more to say about it, right? I mean, it underperformed. It's kind of the beginning of the Eddie Murphy decline. Only, only, uh, I only, I think the year before, uh, Beverly Hills Cop Three uh, underperformed as well. So this is you. This is where you have you know even with Nutty Professor being a monster hit, he starts doing family movies, Doctor Doolittle, Daddy Daycare, coming down the line, right? Shrek, and um, these types of movies, you know, the more traditional Eddie Murphy vehicles start underperforming, right? Holy Man is another one that comes out a couple years after this. And, um, you know, and that's just and, you know, we we record this episode as he is on a potential career comeback. And I will say in, you know, in rewatching this movie, I am fascinated to do Eddie Murphy B side because he has so many of these movies in the mid 90s to late 90s that are super interesting. One of them being this cop thriller Metro in which the bad guy is Michael Wincott, who we just and, mentioned and so back. yeah but yeah i mean um, what else is there any kind of final Bassett words that we should hit on vampire in brooklyn yeah, i just i
2: again you know she's she's underserved in the movie and and i get that it's it's murphy's movie but i do think um it's it's all she's basically i mean she's basically wasted and i think a better version of this movie i think i could like you know I can picture a better version of this movie that still accomplishes the horror and the comedy and all that, that still utilizes her really, uh, really well. Um, but, but this is not that movie, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. And it's like, how can you blame her for taking it? She gets the Oscar nomination and then she, you know, you're going to say no to an Eddie Murphy movie. I mean, no. And
2: she had, she had, I believe she had worked with Wes Craven before on TV stuff. So like, I, I, it all makes sense. It's, you know, I I do think in the grand scheme of like flops and b sides, you know, there, there are a few that we talk about occasionally that are like, what were you thinking? Right. Uh, that, that, you know, on their face, you know, the, the, you have the other ones on their face, like this one that, that seem fine. Like it makes, it it all makes sense. It's just like sort of a, a general misfire, uh, along the line. And, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, then, then you, you get into, uh, our next B-side, which is way better, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, If by way better you mean barely a movie, uh, you are correct. Our next movie, Supernova, directed by Thomas Lee. And let me just say this, before we even talk about the movie, Connor, let's put in the trailer for Supernova right here. Oh, the infamous trailer? Yeah, we're going to drop it right
2: now.
0: Welcome to the world of medical rescue vessel Nightingale 9. You want to tell me what you're doing out here? I like deep space. It's quiet. (laughs) Prepare for rescue operation via Dimension Jump. Research says D-Jump is great for your sexual stamina. Hallelujah. You can play with me whenever you want. I'm not saying anything's gonna happen between us, but if it does, I want you to understand whatever happens on this ship stays on this ship. Hi-ho, Silver. It was their time and their space until they answered a distress signal that would change everything. What do we got? SOS Critical. Because the survivor they brought aboard You know? Worst nightmare I ever met. This is your worst nightmare? was carrying deadly cargo. It's not
2: man-made. It's buried in the middle of an ice moon.
0: It's the most
1: amazing thing any of us has ever got to see. Lucky for us, huh? Or maybe something so dangerous that the only way somebody could finally get rid
0: of it was by burying it. And he's about to turn the heavens. This thing is changing you in the most amazing ways. Into hell. Help me. I really wish you hadn't done that. I wish you hadn't done that either. I've gotten out of worse situations, we'll get out of this one. When you said you've been in worse situations than this, when was that? Ten minutes ago
1: when the ship was falling and the engine's
0: cut out. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the universe. I'm coming for you. Here's a little something from me to you. Supernova.
1: Supernova. And now that you, now you have seen this trailer, and if you want to keep listening, God bless you. I'll quickly say, um, just to connect Vampire to Supernova, we mentioned she goes into Terry McMillan world, Angela Bassett waiting to exhale. She makes Contact, the Robert Zemeckis movie. She gets her groove back in 1998, also Terry McMillan adaptation.
2: And and to reiterate, waiting to yeah, both those waiting to exhale, Stella got her groove back. They're all. In terms of if you want to watch like good, really yeah, good, great Angie Bass performances, she's yeah,
1: she's really good. Good movies and and kind of underrated, I almost think in in the space of time. I mean, they're not B sides because they did well, and I do think people regard them well, but I don't know. You know, waiting to exhale, Forrest Whitaker's first movie. I I was just impressed at how much was going on in it and how much of it worked. You know, uh, yeah. And Whitney Houston's her own kind of you know, potential B side. Cause I would argue she was a movie star, even though she didn't make many movies. Um, there's a lot there to really kind of dig into. She makes music of the heart in 1999, which is also Wes Craven doesn't do that. Well, gets the obligatory Meryl Streep Oscar nomination. I think also gets an Oscar nomination for best original song, uh, for the song Meryl Streep. The song I think was called mm-hmm. Meryl Streep, which is, I think why I got the nomination. Uh, lest we forget, Gloria Estefan is also in that movie. Um, and Aiden Quinn, who Aiden Quinn, let me say, would be a great almost movie star episode.
2: Yeah, we talk about him briefly on the Pierce Brosnan episode. And he's, he's you know, he's an interesting actor. Yeah, he's, he's one of those
1: guys you watch, yeah. you look at that filmography, and he definitely had some shots. And it just never really... He was supposed to play Jesus Christ in The Last Temptation of Christ for Martin Scorsese. And it didn't come Is together. That, I did not yeah, know that. yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Now, okay. Supernova. So... As we said, directed by Thomas Lee. Um, Spoiler alert, that's not a real person. We'll get into that in a minute. Quickly, the movie is a sci-fi outer space epic of sorts. Um, It's in the future. They're on a spaceship called the Nightingale. It's kind of like a maintenance medical ship. They kind of describe it as being like, oh, everything's really boring and then it's stressful, but it's mostly boring, you know, is like what they're doing there
2: which is a vibe i'll say in the grand scheme of like this subgenre of
1: sci-fi movies i guess i'm reading it says it's a search i guess it's i'm just reading the wikipedia it says it's a search yeah. and rescue like medical ship so i guess it's basically just kind of floating around to Waiting help for something to happen right. and then helping people basically right which that is okay. what the plot of the movie is so basically you have um Angela Bassett is Dr. Kayla Evers, who's like the lead medical uh, doctor on the ship. You have, and
2: she's the only one who comes across as such. By the way,
1: and every like right. Robin Tunney's in this movie. Ugh, a few Tunney. people in this movie. Like it, 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 this, is the Tunney, this is the Tunney. This is the moment. This is yeah. This is vertical limit, right? This is the moment where it's maybe Tunney's the one. Um. So yeah, Angela Bassett. When we were talking about the idea of this idea of her being stern and no nonsense. This is a movie, the way it's cut together that you would say she's playing one note, but when you learn about the production of it, you could never blame Angela Bassett for this. Cause
2: there, there are also just some like just crazy things they do in this movie in terms right. of like the way
1: they cut around it, things that they do. We'll get into it in a second. but so, like. Yeah, I mean, basically, yes. Robert Foster, who you know from Jackie Brown, a bunch of other movies, he is the captain, Captain Marley. Uh, uh, Angela Bassett's the doctor on the ship. Lou Diamond Phillips is in this movie. Robin Tunney, Young Wilson Cruz. That's like the main, uh, you know, uh, crew. And then there's a new member played by Hot James Spader he's good looking good James Fitter. I think he's
2: really good. Uh, he's, n- he's, he's basically, I think one of the only people from a, just a general quality standpoint who makes it out of this movie a
1: lot. I agree. Uh, he's Nick yeah. Van Zant, a recovering drug addict who is back. Ha- Hazen, Hazel, Hazen. Yeah. The drug, like, Something the, like that. the drug. Yeah. yeah. He's like this former addict who's on the ship, which is like, this is another one of these movies, which I love where it's tortured people who are in space. And you're like, why do they let these people, you know, it's that gravity thing, you know, like you have yeah. trauma. Okay. go to yeah. I guess the idea of this movie, presumably there's no, I mean, there's very little context, but I would presume in this movie, the idea is going to space at this point is pretty perfunctory. So maybe right. it's, it's like, like blue, it's like a blue. Yeah. Maybe it's almost, like a normal, yeah. like more like an alien type of a thing. Um, yeah. yeah Spader is actually great in this, but basically the premise of the movie is, um, they get a distress signal. They have to like launch to, it's not light speed, but it's, it's like interdimensional. They They literally like cross dimensions. It's kind
2: of interesting.
1: Like I, yeah, it is. It's like, there's,
2: there's like a version of this movie somewhere, not this movie, not like the one that they shot, but there's like a version of the screenplay somewhere. That's like probably a halfway decent sci-fi horror action movie. Um, and it has some interesting stuff in it. They like basically, and again, they don't, they don't really explain this. They just call it dimension jumping. But the idea being you have to be like alone in your pod with nothing else because you could like fuse with anything that contaminates the atmosphere of your pod when they do the jump. Right. And that comes into play specifically, uh, with Robert Forster cause they do the jump to answer the distress distress call and what he comes out the other end, basically as this like gross abomination that's like fused with his pod. And you could just feel him also just being like, he, 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 he looks just like, I don't even know what, just this like splattered thing. That's half Robert Forrester, half like Kushball kind yeah, of.
1: Yeah. It's so gross. And,
2: and he is looking at A. G. Bassett and he's like, kill me. and what he really kind of it almost feels like is
1: am I done yet? Right? Like he's like, Can I, he's like, can, I done done? can I go home? Can I mail me my check?
2: Exactly. Well, I mean, look, um,
1: it's funny. This is a I mean, Robert Forster must get this offered this role because of Jackie Brown, right? He has this like comeback role in Jackie Brown sure, and then sure. and so I mean look, this is this movie, even though it comes out in January. You know, was a big movie. The budget's anywhere from sixty to ninety million dollars. I think the ninety is probably including, you know, the reshoots and the additional hires that happened. The editing and all that. Now, just to wrap up the actual plot, they they get this distressing signal from this guy Carl Larson from this ice mining rig that's on, I think, Titan, one of the Jupiter moons, and they do their dimensional light year jump. Uh, They lose their captain in the process. James Spader then becomes the de facto captain after Robert Forster dies. And you find out while they're about to make the jump that Angela Bassett Knows this guy Carl Larson and says that he's this horrible person before they do the jump and then but just doesn't tell anybody about it. She like tells like (laughs) like Wilson Cruz or Robin Tunney or somebody about it. I think she taught. I think she mentions it to Spader. They they do no no. She doesn't. She doesn't. I don't think she mentions it to Spader because then later on Spader's like, why didn't you tell every you know tell everybody. So they pick up Carl Larson, who's a young Peter Fascinelli, who you would know from the Twilight movies, Nurse Jackie, right? He's been in a lot of stuff. He was in, he's Mike, uh, Mike from Can't Hardly Wait. He's like the douchebag jock, jock from uh, Can't yeah. Hardly Wait, only a couple years before this. And things go wrong. That's the base I mean, it's basically the third act of sunshine, right? For a little bit more of the movie and way, 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 way worse, right? It's it's a total mess. Doesn't really make any sense. A lot of it's ADR, a lot of it's lines off-screen and edited in wides so you don't see their lips moving fully. Um Yeah, there's
2: there's a ton of that.
1: Carl, sure. So Carl Larson you fu- you ultimately find out this guy Peter Fascinelli, is Carl Larson even though he seems too young and it has to do that he's basically smuggling this alien life form back with him and the crew finds out and it becomes this you know this it basically this like brick glowing cube thing that lou diamond phillips would come obsessed with and there's all this other stuff robin tunney wants to have a baby basically
2: this thing like creates new life and fast wants to bring it back to earth and they're like oh it's essentially like
1: they find out, so, like a, and this is another cool thing in the movie, but it's once again in a movie that's not, you know, is cut in such a way that they don't want to explore this. They call it nine dimensional, right? So basically what they say is this is an alien artifact that if brought back into our world will remake our world. So
2: basically, MacGuffin-wise, this thing is this sort of object that creates new life. From like the ninth dimension and if it's brought back to earth it would like wreak havoc basically in our three dimensions before it creates uh creates new life it's very similar to uh it sort of feels ripped straight from the uh the plot of uh, wrath of khan uh which is kind of similar
1: a movie i have actually never seen it's on my guilty
2: Need to watch list. It's the it's good. It's like, you know, it's it's one of the best. I'm not like a huge Trekkie, so I I don't know if it's like my favorite of those movies, but I feel like um, among people who love them, I feel like everyone considers it uh, the one to watch. But this movie obviously doesn't really do much with it. You know, it's sort of like a lot of things in this movie. I think it kind of like half starts to explain things like the like the dimensional jump, like things that are maybe kind of interesting from a world building standpoint. And then it just sort of leaves them in favor of like, uh, uh, sort of like you said earlier, like a a worse version of the ending of Sunshine. Like it leaves them in favor of kind of like space horror, but it's like not gross enough or horrifying enough or anything like that. Uh, Everything feels really like low rent
1: yeah. so I mean, it's a good it's a good segue to get into the most interesting thing about Supernova, which it's, you know, super uh, for my money, I don't know that Supernova is even really regarded at all anymore. but I've always I remember watching it whenever it reran on, you know, the sci-fi channel or whatever. so I, I this was a rewatch for me. Um and like we said, it's it's a it's a mess of a movie. and it's all in the production and the development of this picture, right? So, some quick background: um, It was kind of originally a property in the early '90s. A guy named William Malone, um, just kind of reading off of different things. It was meant to be more modest. The quote that apparently was part of the pitch was uh, "dead calm in space." Okay. Um, H.R. Geiger got involved to produce some. Uh, early sketches and obviously he did the alien design for alien i think there's a documentary about him and his work actually out now or soon um because i think it played at a bunch of festivals um and then you know over that decade it you know took on a life of its own as now many was walter hill
2: was walter hill always attached to it or
1: i don't believe so Diger i think and all that? Like- there was yeah, there was no. I think there was initial directors and um, and this guy named Jack Shoulder was involved, and um, that sounds like another gentleman name. named Jeffrey Wright. Who I wonder if he's the same Jeffrey Wright? Yeah, the guy who directed um, Romper Stomper. Okay, uh, which that was a big coming out party for um, young Russell Crowe in the early yep. 90s. So he was an Australian filmmaker. He was attached, this guy Jack Shoulder. And then just reading, this is literally reading off the Wikipedia, James Spader campaigning for Walter Hill, who obviously was involved in the Alien films, right? So this yep. kind of his return to space in a lot of ways. And um, basically what happened was they started making the movie and MGM started butting heads with Walter Hill. Um, the screenwriter David Wilson's quoted, Walter's vision of the film was different from the studios. It's a shame that couldn't be resolved during production. Yeah. I think the funny <laughs> thing with all these stories is I do wonder, I mean, you know, look, we, we we talk about this a lot. Me and you, we produce things that are mostly branded, smaller things, you know, commercials. We've been lucky enough to make some of our own stuff, you know, which we're talking about budgets is, you know, short films and features with 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 budgets in the thousands. You know what I mean? Like, so collaboration is so essential because obviously it's just, you know, you're not even at a level that would allow for ego necessarily to even dictate much. Right. Yeah. That being said. You can understand when you are on sets and you are developing ideas that people are married to and are passionate about how things can go this way. Where, like, someone like Walter Hill, who's had such a celebrated career, comes in, has ideas, has the support of you know at least some of the casts, you know, and then a company like MGM. They're looking at the bottom line, they're looking at the budget. let's let's assume, you know what I mean? And you know it's the it's a classic creative differences thing. Suffice it to say, so shooting begins in 1998. Um, Hill is quoted as saying the budget was cut halfway through production. Um, they had a lot of problems with the special effects. like so for example, one in terms of that specifically, Peter Fascinelli's character at the end, is meant to turn into like a full-blown monster yeah like an alien monster but instead at the end like not even he get his face is a little fucked up like that's that you know because i think the digital effects on the monster was they were nobody was ever satisfied with yeah and so a quote a quote um from hill and look walter hill is a very outspoken guy so like he's pretty You know, you can read interviews with him about his career. I think he's not unlike a De Palma. He's one of these guys who, you know, was right with the Ridley Scotts and the Steven Spielbergs and these guys. And I think maybe kind of this is I'm kind of assuming here, but his brashness and maybe stubbornness and just general, you know, wanting to make the movie he wanted to make it would appear that was a factor in maybe why he's not regarded at the high level of whatever Spielberg. He yeah. has a
2: pretty good, if anybody's interested, he has, he does have a really good, uh, WTF interview.
1: Um, right.
2: I mean, yes. Yeah. And
1: I, which I've listened to and, and he yeah, talks that's very, a great, he talks very candidly about very candidly. And um, I, think I if, know, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, he, I don't know, but if I'm not mistaken, he's pretty open about his own, like, you know, if I'm remembering that interview, he's not shy about, you know, acknowledging his own part. Right. And just trying to make these movies and having trouble with studios. Right. It's not oh, yeah, like no, he's, no, no.
2: he's very he's like very transparent. It's a really good if you want to dive into more just like Walter Hill and maybe. Yeah, that's more of What sort of led to what uh, what we're talking about here. It's just a nice sort of uh,
1: crash course in, in in him. And it's it's a good it's a good interview. Um, but so a quote here that's just on this large supernova Wikipedia from Hill, we limped in, in post, we had a tremendous, this is after they've, they've, this is, uh, when they're test screening the film after initial production, we limped in, in post, we had a tremendous amount of effects stuff to do. They decided they wanted to preview the movie without the effects. I said, this was insane. It's a science fiction movie. The effects had to be added. They wanted to see how it played. I told them it would be like shit, terrible, very bad preview. You will give up on the movie. Those previews <laughs> those previews under those these conditions are political. Are you saying you won't preview the movie, I said? You own the goddamn thing. If you want to preview it, I can't prevent you, but I won't go. They saw this as defiance. Taking this into consideration and after more arguments with MGM, Hill quit the project. So then Jack Shoulder, after the bad text screening, comes back in to re-edit Hill's footage and do some reshoots. Um, Apparently a lot got deleted from Hill's version. Um, A lot of character stuff. No. And stuff was added. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And stuff was added. And then this is what's crazy. So over a year after initial um, production starts, right? So like spring 98, filming begins summer 99 um francis ford coppola who at the time i guess was a member of the board of uh, metro golden uh mayor right Mm -hmm. mgm he was brought in to supervise another round of editing that cost uh reported one million dollars and was done at his american zoetrope spot in northern california and this is when Now, I wanted to talk about this and see if you even thought about this. In the movie, everybody is, like, having sex with everybody, right? And in the infamous trailer, they make reference to all the sex that's being had. So, in the final cut of the movie, though, it's very strange because the opening scene between Bassett and Spader, who are the two stars above the title, right, in this movie, they, like, are introduced and Bassett's immediate, like, i don't like the spader guy he's a recovering drug addict i used to know someone who was addicted to drugs spoiler alert that's carl, carl larson, larson yeah. right so they have this contentious but i guess it's meant to be kind of like sexual like meeting yeah and then in the next scene they're together they're like drinking or she's drinking he brings or her. he brings her like a
2: like, like a pear, pear wine pear, or pear something brandy, yeah or something
1: like that and yeah. And, th- and then they immediately get it on. And there's a shot down the spaceship this of them in you zero – about- gra- Yes. Yeah. yes. Okay. They're in zero gravity having sex. Now, if you watch the movie, it is clearly not James Spader and Angela Bassett. It, so it this is-, is what happened. Yeah. Okay. And this is – And Francis Ford Coppola, one of our great directors, right? Apocalypse Now, yeah. the conversation – the godfather movies okay jack for God's obviously, sake! obviously
2: jack yeah
1: um this is what happened oh god this made me when i read this this made me so okay.
2: mad i just was like okay. as Thank
1: part you. of this like additional re-editing that uh coppola oversaw they digitally placed bassett and spader's faces on the bodies of robin tunney and Peter Fassanelli, who also have sex later in the movie in Zero Gravity, so that the Bassett and Spader characters could have a sex scene. And you're asking, well, Robin Tunney's white and Angela Bassett's black, so what did they do? They darkened Robin Tunney's body. So when you see that scene where... If you're watching the movie, which I, you know, you shouldn't do, but if you were to watch it, I mean, it's only like 90 minutes. It's not, you know, it's really like 83, yeah, right? It's before so credits. so. I don't so know, in the watch. digital pan through the spaceship, right where you where you see Spader and Bassett, quote unquote, having sex, which is literally footage from what would be a scene later of Tunney and Fascinelli having sex in zero gravity. That's Robin Tunney's body, but literally digitally painted black. To assume the body of Angela Bassett. I don't even understand how you can like contractually do that. Like I would be curious how Angela Bassett and her representation felt about that. Like what's the legality of that? Because you're, I I just, to me in a SAG world that confuses me, but I, I obviously it happened and the movie came out. So me, I wonder if Um, you get away with it because it's not actual
2: footage. Like it's all digital and so, yeah, yeah, I wonder if maybe there's a technicality there. I, when I read that, I was like, this, that's the one of the so, most insane things. Suffice it to
1: say, suffice it to say, Coppola's re edited version still got negative, you know, notices at test screenings. shock. And I guess they didn't get, they wanted a PG 13 rating, but they didn't get it. And it um, feels
2: like that because it feels like the movie wants to like do more. And then it, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 it's like a, from a, from like a, Edginess standpoint, or whatever you want to call it, versus like the gore, the sex, any any of that, like it feels so, in limbo.
1: MGM, it's yeah. All right. Anyway, so the movie ultimately, after all this, and obviously not much to do, you know, much to do, really about nothing. Ultimately, um, it was released on January seventeenth, two thousand. You know, a good nearly two years after they started production. And you know makes. What did it make? I think I'm just making sure I'm right here. It made fourteen million dollars, right? A, a reported budget of ninety million. And and like I said, and anywhere between sixty and ninety. And we're assuming
2: um, that ninety is probably after Coppola.
1: Well, that's my assumption. Is the sixty maybe is like. Before Hill leaves yeah. and they hire a new director and they recut it twice. I mean, either way it's a failure. It doesn't really matter. Um but. there, you know, there are other alternate versions. You know, the availability of those versions are obviously kind of up in the air. Um I know that Walter Hill still praises Spader's performance as kind of being true to what was initially conceived, which I think we were talking about earlier. Yeah, makes he's, sense.
2: He's I he's I think the most like the char- the problem, one of the biggest problems with this movie, I think, is that, and again, who, who knows what's on the cutting room floor, right? But it, in, the, in the movie, as it stands, I wrote in my notes that, like, I'd almost be more impressed with this if it were an episode of a TV show, because that's the way it feels. Like, not just in the quality of the effects or anything like that, but, like, you're almost introduced, not almost, you're introduced to basically all of these characters as if you should know them already. And it's really weird because it just goes right through like any kind of introduction of all of them. And that's almost that that's what makes all of them feel just like sci-fi movie stereotypes. Kind of,
1: Um, you know, it's funny in the wiki page for supernova on the see also tab is sunshine.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's very, I mean, it's sunshine is like the, the better version of the movie. Right. It's like, yeah. uh,
1: So, I mean, you know, in terms of Angela Bassett, right. She is above the title in this movie. Once again, this is one you can't – you're working with Walter Hill, right? You're working with a pretty accomplished group of actors at that time at the very least, right? You know, 2,000 people like Robin Tunney, Lou Diamond Phillips, right? Peter Fastinelli, James Spader. It's not a bad cast. It really isn't, you know? And I just think this is one of those things, you know, if Vampire in Brooklyn is an example of kind of – you make a movie and it just doesn't congeal, but you do make the movie and to get it finished in a way that you kind of intended to, to some degree. This is just one of these movies where it, you know, it never, from Jump Street, I think from the minute they started rolling, MGM and Hill were never aligned. So anyway, bringing it back to the Thomas Lee reference, if you watch the movie, the credited director is Thomas Lee. Now, that is Walter Hill, who took a directorial pseudonym because he quit the movie and wanted to take his name off of the project. Now, if you know anything about movies and movies that people, that directors disregard in the middle of production or post-production or what have you, the name that the Directors Guild for many, many years had as the designated name to put on a film that you wanted to take your name off of was Alan Smithy. Okay? In the year 1997, a movie came out called an Ali Smithy film, "Burn Hollywood, F- Burn," directed by Walter Hill. Uh, Hill sorry, directed by Wal- Arthur Hiller, and written by Joe Asterhos, who, who wrote, you know, "Basic Instinct" and uh, "Fatal Attraction" and whatnot. This was meant to be a stinging satire, like "Fuck Hollywood" movie, but ultimately, and this is the irony of an Allie Smithy film, Arthur Hiller ended up taking his name <laughs> off of the, uh, the movie in Alan Smithy film. So in Allie Smithy film, burn Hollywood burn is directed by Alan Smithy, right? Cause Alan, Arthur Hiller took his name off the movie. Suffice it to say, when that movie came out only three years before supernova, the DGA discontinued the Alan Smithy credit Almost like the cat was out of the bag. Because the cat was fully out of the bag. Yeah. So, as I understand it, when Walter Hill took his name off of Supernova, the new name that they credited was Thomas Lee as kind of the new name. Now, I was looking. I couldn't find other movies where Thomas Lee was credited. So, I don't know if that just kind of came and went or if that's like an official pseudonym. There's other examples of this. So, Another another big example is David Lynch took David Lynch insisted he they take his name off of the TV edits of Dune right. because it it like really changed a lot. So I think ultimately now, basically, his name is I think on most versions because you know it's just part of his canon. But like in the mid eighties when Dune was cut for TV, you know on your TV you would see it directed by Alan Smithy, right? So that's an example of where Alan Smithy came into play, you know, pre-1997, um, there are other examples, you can look it up, I mean, you know, it's a well-covered, you know, it it was a well-covered, you know, DGA stipulation, so, um, that's kind of all there is to say about Supernova, I mean, I, I, it's funny, I, as a kid, like I said, remember watching it on TV and kind of enjoying the ending, just because it's, it is batshit, you know, but, um, in rewatching, of course, it's hard to deny. It's just not real. It's almost not really a movie, right? I mean, it's yeah, you know, it's
2: barely. I would honestly, I'd rank it just above a movie like The Snowman, right? Where like The
1: Snowman, I would put it right with The Snowman. It's, I, it's very I this, similar to The Snowman. I think this movie, at least,
2: I think it has at least the bare bones of like an A to B to C narrative. I guess, yeah, barely. Like barely, but it's like, I can, I was still able to follow the movie. Even if some of the, like the nitty gritty was a little nonsensical. Uh,
1: no, the, I think the snow, the snowman is like almost incomprehensible, but right. That's another one thing I, I wanted think. to mention just cause we're talking about this movie, the other movies I think about that came out around this same time when you talk about supernova and I just, I wanted to mention them. One one, one, one we've talked about already on this podcast. I think about movies like virus. Yep sphere
2: yeah
1: event horizon which, which is, is maybe the sneaky best good them, sneaky probably. good yeah. mission to mars directed by de palma which i kind and, of have a soft spot for yeah it's it's ambitious and red planet
2: which i also kind of have a soft spot for me yeah, you like your that, you like your mars movies. yeah the mars, like, movies, yeah, like the mars, mars movies. movies got me i guess um yeah there's also there's like a weird thing and we can i mean we can kind of wrap it up with this but like so, and I think just
1: to say I think Jack Shoulder I think I made it sound earlier like Jack Shoulder came in before Walter Hill but I think he was always the guy hired after Walter Hill. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. But like I said the Jeffrey Wright Australian director helped uh you know who the Russell Crowe movie. He was one of the he like initial people approached. One of the initial people. Yeah. William Malone who I mentioned before, he was like the first one who he's also of he made um William Malone directed The House on Haunted Hill remake yep. yeah 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 uh-huh. and fear.com oh i don't Everybody remember Sphere.com starring Stephen Dorff
2: <laughs> i don't remember that one um
1: anyway uh the, the end of the movie's
2: really weird because and it's not you know it's not again like a lot of things in this movie like the setup isn't the worst it's it's fine it's uh the, the basic like initial setup that leads to the climax of the movie is that they have, and this is where the movie gets its title. They have like 17 hours, right. To recharge before they do another jump. They've jumped to this like light year, I think Dan, you mentioned it was Jupiter. It's like it's not Jupiter. It's like a it's like another planet, distant planet. Oh yeah, yeah. I said I Titan. said
1: because yeah, I'm wrong. I think because I said because it was Titan, the moon. Yeah, I thought it was the like, moon time, but I like think it's, it's own, obviously it's not like that. its own
2: planet, whatever. And it's in front of this like blue giant star, right? That's like about to supernova, basically. And so the ticking clock on the movie, which again the movie sort of abandons and then brings back up at the end when it matters. But the ticking clock on the movie is that, like, they have 17 hours to basically recharge their engines to do another jump back to Earth so that they can go home after they realize this whole rescue thing was a bust, right? Uh, but that only gives them an 11-minute window until they, like, the, the star itself, like, explodes and burns them up, right? So yeah. just coincidence may have it. Which, like, again, if you're going to put, like, a ticking clock on a on a 90-minute Movie, it's it's fine, it it works, but they don't really address it enough to really keep that suspense up. That said, they discover that the MacGuffin, this alien artifact, is a bomb of sorts, and they decide that it can never go back to uh, it can never go back to uh, Earth and whatnot, um, and. In the last moments of the movie, it's revealed that like, oh well, even if it blows up here in the sun, um, it'll it'll still reach Earth, right? In, in yeah, like in, in like we've 50, already done, yeah, it's done, yeah, yeah, in like fifty-seven years, right?
1: Yeah, it's and, a weird. They do it, it. It's such a it's such a it's such a fucked with ending because you're gonna you're gonna talk about what they do, right? Well, so
2: then they do the thing where. Then the computer. The computer's name is Sweetie, by the way.
1: Uh, so Sweetie, then. And Wilson Cruz's character has like a a, a, lo- a relationship, which I sort of kind of. That was actually kind of like the best part of the movie. I yeah, thought. I, I kind of liked it, but yeah. the that voice it. actress who plays Sweetie, whose name I think she it
2: sounded like Robin Tunney.
1: Yeah, it's Vanessa Marshall does the voice. Uh, really good work, actually. Yeah. Like. Wilson, Everybody dies, right? Most people die in yeah. this movie. So when Wilson Cruz does get killed by Fascinelli, her voice performance reacting to Wilson Cruz being dead is actually probably the most affecting part <laughs> of the whole movie. <laughs> I really felt so the bad AI. for that computer. The I was A- like, sweetie, oh, sweetie, yeah. <laughs> he's dead. Wilson, Young Wilson Cruz, he's so young. Sweetie. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, I also didn't pick up that the computer's name was Sweetie at first because James Spader, I think, is the first one to address the computer. And he just seems like the kind of dude that would call
1: anybody Sweetie. You know? Yes, he's like yes, kind of a yes. dick. So I was like, oh, that's Now, that's Wilson weird. Cruz, I keep talking about like this. Like, he obviously was Ricky Vasquez in my so called life. So he was already like, he yeah, had he does. a career. I mean, he's
2: mostly like TV now, I was looking.
1: He's, what's funny is, you know what show he's on right now? What? Star Trek Discovery. Oh, that makes uh, yeah. Cruising he back, it. he's cru
2: cruising in space. Back <laughs> he made in it. Space, he babe. made it. Um, but yeah, no. Anyway, so they have to. Uh, Fascinelli, when things are going to shit, uh, he destroys all but one of the last pods. And if you recall earlier, I had mentioned that the you know the pods can't be con- contaminated with anything else when you do a you know whatever a dimensional jump. But Spader and Bassett decide, like, fuck it. Let's just we'll give it a shot. Um, So they share it. So they share it. They make the jump. And then Sweetie reveals to them like, oh, okay, that explosion is going to reach Earth in 57 years. Right. And you're pregnant. Like, just says it. Yeah, it's it's
1: such a weird ending because it's literally like, well, the damage has been done in, in about 60 years. Everything's gonna reform. It's, yeah, and it's and you're pregnant. So it's like they're trying to almost have their it, cake and eat it. Yeah, too. it's
2: but like it's not a long I would I would be okay because with it the
1: pregnancy it like, thing they added, that was like yeah. allegedly a coppola ad. Like that was like that was that was like in the the second round of re-edits. Sure. And it no, and it feels like it because it's and
2: you know, whatever. It's an easy thing to add. It's the computer saying it, whatever. But the it's so weird just cause like 57 years, isn't a long enough amount of time for it to feel okay. You know, you're like, well, it's no, I, mean, I know. That's what I mean. The, the it's kids, weird. It's like the kids screwed to have a family. And then the kids just fucked. Like the kids, <laughs> yeah, the
1: whole time they're raising this kid, they're going to be so downtrodden. They're going to be like, they, well, the kid's going to live to 50.
2: Yeah. On your 56th birthday, you're in for a surprise. Yeah, exactly. Um. Anyway. Yeah. I don't know. That's supernova. It's a, that's that's a it's a bad film uh, you
1: know Yeah I mean I feel I feel like we didn't talk about Bassett enough but there's really not much to say she's, I mean she's I, again
2: not on like Vampire know. in Brooklyn it's like it's she's she's sort of she's underserved it's again you can understand like you said Dan why she takes the movie you know with Walter Hill you get the idea that like oh you mean I can be like an Ellen Ripley you know like you, like I like Right, of course. Yeah, of course. There's all of of the decisions I think on paper make sense. And I think it's sort of a bummer. It's sort of just a bummer for her that, like, she just, you know, kept getting trapped in these movies. Um, But yeah, but then basically after Supernova.
1: Well, I want to say she makes a movie in 2000 called Bozeman and Lena. Which doesn't really, barely comes out. It
2: kind of is a B side. We probably should have. Well, it's just it's
1: a Kino movie. It's based on um, a play by tall Fugard, a South African playwright, and the play came out in the late '60s. And I I know nothing about this. This is Beauty of the B side. This is something I never knew about. I'm learning it only because I'm we're digging into Angela Bassett. But it, it seems like an interesting movie, right? It's it's during apartheid in South Africa. And as I understand it, just looking about it, it's inspired by an incident in 1965 when the playwright was in South Africa and saw an old lady walking along the road in the boiling hot sun. Um, and he offered her a ride. And the old woman told the playwright that her husband had just passed away as they were walking to another farm. And had he not stopped, she would have to just like sleep on the side of the road. And essentially, so the play I think is an adaptation. It's this couple I think walking from one town to another. And the in the movie, the 2000, year 2000 adaptation is actually the second adaptation. There was a movie from 73 the movie stars Angela Bassett and Danny Glover and i you know i don't think it got great notices just kind of doing some quick research here but it just sounds interesting i, I definitely think it's one i'm going to seek out after
2: he's after also recording. he's an he's an actor that i i also like literally hey, uh, any, any, Glover, anytime i see yeah. his name honestly even in like the just whatever straight to netflix things Anytime I see Danny Glover's face or name, I'm like my interest is peaked at least like five. percent I agree. Like I'm kind yeah. of like. I mean,
1: what? he makes a lot of like VOD stuff, but yeah. I think when he's in kind of, you know, stuff that has a little bit of a backing, you know. Um. So yeah. Anyway, I would just feel remiss not to mention that that literally comes out in 2000. Um. You know, it doesn't really go anywhere. Then we mentioned before 2001. She has the score, which is an underrated little heist movie. With Robert De Niro, Eleanor, I tried. I and- tried
2: rewatching it because um, I, used, I feel like I used to have kind of a soft spot for this movie. Um, Did you
1: not like it? I you, see. The, I rewatched the it the and liked it stuff, more.
2: The Norton stuff is tough, right? Because he see, uh, he okay. he pretends to be. He pretends to be mentally handicapped, and but I
1: mean, it's it's. But, but he, he
2: also is the villain of the movie, kind yeah, of. Yeah, I mean, he's not so a good guy. Yeah, so I guess it
1: it does make me more kind of morbidly interested, kind of in motherless. In motherless purple,
2: yeah, very very similar. Right? Which I think um, we'll talk about,
1: you know, probably on an episode soon. Uh, it's coming out relatively soon.
2: But uh, yeah, I, that I guess that. That was sort of the big thing that rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, like you said, with her in the score, I think she
1: basically steals every scene she's in. Um, again, you can totally yeah, she's steal. with De Niro and is essentially the woman who's like, you got to get out of the business if yeah, you want to yeah. have. So me. it's sort
2: yeah. of a it's sort of a th- it is a thankless role a little bit, but she does she does make the most of it. Um,
1: Marlon Brando's last on screen performance, and he's I mean, given late stage Marlon Brando, he's do you know fine. do you know the story about him on set with Frank Oz? no I'm sure he he kept he he had no respect for Frank Oz and kept calling him Miss Piggy oh god because you know he's Frank Oz and <laughs> like a nice so, guy Marlon Brando so was. Frank so Frank so so this is true Frank Oz had to give his direction to Robert De Niro and De Niro had to essentially ghost direct Marlon Brando and do it like a like a like a suggestion, like a friend suggesting to do oh, something. Uh, what and like, De Niro, doesn't, what a really, De Niro like, doesn't really deny this. Like De Niro in interviews now, like, you know, he's he's kind of this elder statesman. He He's honest about, you know, the difficulty of Marlon Brando, right? And like he, there's some late night interview where he mentions, I don't think by name, but he mentions working with Marlon late in his life. And it's obviously on the score and how it was like, you know, a bit challenging because Marlon was so, you know, look, he was old, he was very fat, you know, that. Just that's just the truth. And he was hard for him to move around. And I think he just like barely wanted to be there. And I think De Niro really had to work with Frank Oz and Marlon Brando to just get the takes, literally, you know? And Edward Norton very openly says the only reason he did the movie is to work with Robert De Niro and Marlon Brando.
2: Right, Which, which, I mean, feels like why probably Bassett did it too, right? Like, yeah. You know, I mean, she's, uh, I think she's only ever on screen uh, with, with uh, De Niro. De Niro. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that, yeah, it's, it's fine. I, I liked it less, but I still actually. That's I, interesting. I'll, I definitely. I'll go to is, bat for it as a heist movie. I think as like a small
1: scale. Yeah. It's heist a, movie. I think it's a fun heist movie. It's pretty, this, it's pretty good. This brings it back to what we were talking about with the Jerry Butler. I honestly think with these movies most of them when i go back to them i like them more because they're just not being they made. don't they like don't exist yeah. so when i rewatch them i'm like god you know but the score it's like the stakes are pretty small they're right, right? Like montreal we just, we just didn't like, appreciate it when we had it kind yeah of. like they're in montreal the people are speaking french he runs yeah. a jazz club like they're like different locations there's people aren't fighting in airport hangars it's like <laughs> they actually went to a bar and they filmed in a bar like they actually filmed in montreal you know like
2: I'll, I'll be brief about this, but this is something actually I brought up to Lucas after we wrapped the, the Jennifer Lopez episode, that I think the big tragedy of movies like The Score not getting made anymore, and I don't mean The Score specifically, but just the, the kind of movies we're talking about, right, is that when Hollywood at large decided to stop making them, they were way more expensive to make, right? And so right, now right. they don't make them not because like now they don't make them because i feel like that's what's in people's heads they're like oh well it's not worth it we have to hire well, all these people and it's like they're way more affordable to make like you can make one for like 25 million dollars which isn't obviously not a lot of money like it do you know what i mean like it's well, still a significant well, amount of money but most yeah. of that money would probably go towards hiring a movie star now right like as opposed to yeah it's interesting
1: yeah it's an interesting trend and i i do think from a streaming standpoint we are seeing those movies kind of come back right for example for example movie from last year i think yeah either last year or the year before that movie Braven with jason momoa yeah uh huh yep that's to your point it's basically an actioner that the stakes are pretty low it's a man protecting his family you know and jason momoa is a is a legitimate on-screen presence and you know a movie star by any right especially in this day and age. And that's a great example. That movie did not cost a lot of money. There are solid action sets, you know, uh, set pieces. So you can definitely, you know, get back to those types of movies. I do think, yeah, you're running into the larger major studio mentality is way more, you know, bet, bet big, win big, as opposed to, you know, oh, lose 30 million on... I mean, because yeah, the score, for example, basically cost seventy million dollars, right, right?
2: Which is insane. But I bet if which they is made just the score today, right. it would be twenty five. Like it would, it wouldn't. You know, even with like, even if you maybe not if you had De Niro and Norton. Yeah, I don't and think and you Brando. can get all those actors. But, but you, yeah. but you probably at least get one of them. Right. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, look. I mean, we Motherless Brooklyn. I mean, that's an independently financed movie that. Edward Norton directed himself. It took him 20 years to get it made, right? Based on Jonathan Lethem's great book. So that's definitely, that's a period piece. You know, he made it a period piece. I know that budget wasn't crazy. You know what I mean? So that's an example of a movie, you know, not a big studio movie, but these those like to your point, these are the versions of these movies that we're getting made nowadays, you know, and even still kind of barely. Um, now to the point of actually, it's actually a good segue into our final movie. This guy who directed Sunshine State, which came out in 2002, is kind of the king of stretching a dollar and making something great. John Sales, uh, the amazing indie director, one of my personal kind of heroes. We've talked about him favorite directors. Podcast. Yeah, he's one of these guys. I one day hope we can just do a rule break beside John sales day because Damn, I've podcast. seen we could, we could do it. I know. Right. We could just do whatever <laughs> we want. Um, cause you know, so, um, just to connect it to Angela Bassett, she's, I would say the co-female lead in sunshine state. She had a bit role in passion fish, uh, sorry, passion fish, which is one of my favorite movies of John Sayles's and in general, uh, that movie stars Mary McDonald and an amazing Alfred Woodard, and young Angela Bassett's in that for a minute. And then Angela Bassett also is in City of Hope, which is a John Sayles movie from 1991. One thing, as I'm just looking at her filmography, I wanted to mention that I didn't know Angela Bassett plays Malcolm X's wife, Betty Shabazz, yep. twice. Yeah. In Malcolm X and, and in Panther,
2: and then does a movie which is with Mary J. Blige called Betty and Coretta a TV movie, uh, but she doesn't play Betty. Shabazz in that.
1: She plays Coretta. Yeah, which is funny. That is so. You're right. That it's so, that is weird. That she just. I mean, um, I started watching Panther actually. Um, not really a B side of her. Panther was I don't a think TV a movie, right? No, I think Panther came out. Was it Panther? Panther? Panther came out. It was a it was a Gramercy movie. Yeah, it was Mar- Mario Van Peebles movie. Oh. Okay. Um but um anyway, getting back to Sunshine State, directed by John written and directed by John Sales. It takes place in Northern Florida and it's essentially uh it's a, about a group of Floridians of different walks of life, different economic, you know, uh points. And what's happening is developers are coming into this island. I think it's all fictional. I don't think any of these places actually exist. I was yeah, tra- I was trying I w- to look it up in Florida. I didn't find it's called Delrona Beach, and I couldn't find it. If I'm wrong, obviously feel free to correct me. Yeah, any it, but, Any Floridians out there? Right, like how people. dare you? How dare you? Um. So you have these you have these money people coming in trying to buy up the land. The great Edie Falco runs a hotel and restaurant that her father still owns and has owned for many many years. Um. She's being stubborn about selling. Timothy Hutton plays a, I guess not an urban planner, but like a he's a, an architectural he's a designer. Architect. Yeah, he's like a landscape, yeah. thank you. landscape architect. He's a charming landscape architect who kind of catches Edie Falco's eye. and even though he's with the bad guys, you know, uh, they begin kind of a, a dalliance. Angela Bassett comes back into town with her husband to visit her mother who is the lovely actress who Mary Alice, who replaced the original Oracle in the Matrix uh, movies. Gloria
2: Foster, right? Gloria Foster died and Mary Mary Alice took her place. Yeah.
1: It was nice to see her actually. Yeah. I've never seen this
2: movie. So it was, was, Oh yeah. She like popped up and I was like, Hey, that's cool.
1: Yeah. This was a welcome rewatch for me. Um, and there's a bunch of other characters. You have a former Florida state university Heisman trophy winner, football star. Who's, you know, uh, a mini celebrity around town, like a car salesman who he has some connection to the deals going on. The movie begins and ends with these rich guys playing golf and they're they kind of serve as the chorus for the movie, which I appreciated. Um and who else am I forgetting? Mary Steenbergen's in there as Yeah, like, it's a
2: bit I mean it's a big ensemble. Um there's the there's Edie Falco's father. Who is right. this? Basically, this racist like motel restaurant owner. That yeah, and he and he has a house on blind, the water, and uh, and Edie Falco has taken over
1: his business basically. Uh, and Falco- his wife, what I love too, is is his wife, who's Edie Falco's mom, of course, is like a theater director, and one of her best students was Angela Bassett, yeah. who then left for the big city, and kind of now she's just a, basically an actress who does industrials. Yeah. You know, exactly. an actress that Mira an actress that me Mira Connor would work with, you know, or yeah, edit. You exactly. know what I mean? Like that's the type of actress she is. Um, and she's coming back. And she has a complicated relationship with her mother based on what happened in the past, and some of it has to do with that former football player. Now, okay, the thing I love about John Sayles generally, and this is talking about a movie like City of Hope, talking about a movie like Passion Fish, most of his movies, Metawan, was one of his great movies. John Sales is a very political filmmaker but what he does by and by that is so impressive is he makes movies and it's not it, it, they're they're never political movies in which the landowners are are all in they're all coming in and they're all evil and they're there's a one note agenda and they're you know they're all wearing black hats and the poor people who live there are all you know, innocence who all they want to do is just keep living there's obviously a there's a context for that but they're all human beings right like you have like miguel ferrer is in this movie and he's definitely like more of the evil uh fixer guy right but timothy hutton for example he's just doing his job right like he has no ill will towards edie falco edie falco by her own admission doesn't really want to keep the restaurant and isn't really very good at running it, right? Like, you know, um, you have these complicated characters. There's uh Mary Steenbergen's husband, who his he's a character actor, you'd know, his name escapes me. He's this suicidal municipal worker who it's kind of comical throughout the movies trying to kill himself in different ways and always gets interrupted or it doesn't work, you know? There are so many layers to all these characters and it takes such an artist and such a patience of writing and and of directing to develop these characters and such a confidence to roll and, and cast the right actors to play them. And so just the point being, watching a movie like this, you know, obviously it's long, it's two hours, 20 minutes. It can, I'm sure at points feel a little languid, But this is one of those movies, there are scenes, like there's a scene between Edie Falco and Timothy Hutton at a bar where Edie Falco's just been drinking and Hutton's just there. And they're basically just having fun chatting, but it's a little sad because she's kind of admitting her lot in life. And it all starts because Edie Falco's bartender friend tells her somebody's making eyes at her and she sees Timothy Hutton and then this great scene between Timothy Hutton and Edie Falco is then broken when that friend comes over to Edie Falco and goes, "That's not the guy man. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love. And then, right, that like so it's funny, you know, like yeah. Mary Steenburgen plays essentially this woman uh, for the the town who's trying to plan this parade, and is just always lamenting how the the, the parade planning is doing terribly, going bad, and no, nobody's gonna come. And her like suicidal husband is the one who's like trying to make her feel better about it, but it's just so relatable from an event planning standpoint. Sure. Like, like, like you anybody know,
2: who's everybody knows a Mary Steenburgen in this movie for sure. Yeah, and, yeah. and anybody
1: who's pl- and look, anybody who's planned an event, a fucking anniversary party, you know, whatever. Like you know that feeling of you just you're there and you're just like this isn't going right. A, a wedding, whatever, you know, you just like everything's going wrong. I hate this, you know, and of course you're being hyperbolic, but you have to do it. So there's so many touches like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, Connor, you've never, you've never seen this movie. So I definitely want to hear what you you thought about. It. No,
2: I, I loved it. I was like so charmed by this movie. Um, it, I wasn't really sure what I was getting into. I, John Sayles is kind of a blind spot for me. Um, I'd seen eight men out. Um, and I think honestly that might, that might be about it. Um, Right. Amen out is a great one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and so as far as movies he's directed that, uh, he's a little bit of a blind spot. So I didn't quite know what I was getting into at this. Um, and it's, yeah, I don't know. It just, it's like a movie of people talking, but it's n- like way better than that sounds. Right. Like, and it's, and I think it's the kind of thing I almost like with what I mentioned with a movie, like, you know, like the score, like, do, did i love this movie so much just cuz i feel starved for a movie like this at least at least in the larger swath of like wide releases right um and and that might be part of it but it i i don't know i just i loved how to your point how like everything has nuance in this movie like it's not there there's no sort of one like like yeah there are good guys and bad guys and whatever but but even in just the way things are handled, it's it's uh, it's got such an even keel to it that I I think is really makes it really nice. Like particularly like Edie Falco's father, for instance, is like a, has like this great introduction where he's just like he's just like sitting in his chair, just like talking, basically about like it's like a good old days type rant, right? And he is just you know, like saying all this like racist bullshit. And you're like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, exactly. What the fuck? And then like, you realize like it then cuts and you realize he's talking about all this to like his black caregiver. And you're just like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, you're just like, okay. And, and then, but then like later on in the movie and it's, and it's way less, I think it's treated way less sentimental than this is going to sound. It's not like the dude has some sort of change of heart or whatever. But later on in the movie, he has, like, this great little conversation with Angela
1: Bassett's nephew. um, Yeah, who – Her cousin? Nephew? Yeah, at the beginning of the movie, he burns down – he's, like, this kid who's got a problem with fire. He's, like, a little pyro kid. Yeah. He burns down this, like, ship. That's – you know, that starts the whole Mary Steenburgen freaking out about the parade because the ship is the main float. Yeah. This kid burns burns it down, and it was an accident, but caused by his, you know, kind of pyro stuff, and so, um, yeah. But he the, basically he has, has he has a, a conversation
2: with him, and it's just this, you know, it's like just a little getting to know you conversation, but it's like nice, and it's, uh, it, it, I I really loved that about the movie that like everybody in this movie has a moment where you're fur like where you know. When you when you feel like you're either firmly set in what they think or what they're gonna do, they do something else.
1: You know, like, yeah. uh, well, and also just politically, right, and so sh- socio economically, there's a great moment where Bill Cobbs, who I don't think we've mentioned, he's like a local doctor who is leading the charge in a protest capacity against this land development. Yeah, he's great in this movie. Actually, he's great. He's such a great actor. There is a amazing scene where he's talking to uh, Angela Bassett's husband, who we're gonna have to find his name because he's he he does great his, work here I too. just was looking at um, it. his name, uh, and they're talking. on yeah, they're on the beach, and and Bill Cobbs essentially explains to this guy how when everything was segregated down in Florida and throughout the country, if you were a black man or woman you went to the black owned businesses because that was your only option. James McDaniel. Yeah, he's great. So so they're talking on the beach and Bill Cobbs explains how, even though integration on its face obviously was good and is good, a lot of black businesses ended up going under because there was this whole other economy that existed. And they they keep referencing this, great restaurant called Buster's place that isn't there anymore because it it went out of business. And basically the context for what Bill Cobbs is talking about is, and this is what I love, the complexities of democracy, right? Like you get integration, but with it, that means that all the, all these black people are allowed to go to the white owned mart down the street. And they all of a sudden don't need to go to the black owned business that's a little bit further and maybe a little bit more expensive, right? And even though it's good that everything's integrated for the culture and you know at a, on a macro political level, for the small business owners, right, like the guy who owned Buster's place, Buster, right, they lose customers. And the whole point he makes is now those same people, those same you know people of color, Are working for white owned businesses now right as opposed to being forced you know to uh start their own business with a built-in economy of other people of color needing to go there right so and he's not saying it like he wants my point is he's not saying it and this monologue isn't meant to be like this is why segregation works that's not the point right the point is simply to acknowledge that two things can be true at the same time you know like Isn't it a shame that this happened? And what I love about his movies in general, and this is a great distillation, this is certainly one of his better movies, John Sayles. It's such a, there's so much to think about. And it's not just people standing on a platform yelling it at you, it's in the context of built well-formed characters, right? No one is shouting at you about this stuff. It's happening naturally within the context of the movie. And it's just, it's one of those things, you know, he's made a a a, a bunch of different, like he's worked in a bunch of different genres, right? Like he made a movie called The Return of the Secaucus 7, which is like a lot, the big chill, the big chill would come out like five years later and the movies are very similar, right? That's just like a sit and talk movie, right? And, um, a movie uh, like City of Hope is more of like kind of a inner city thriller might be too strong a word, but that's a little bit more directly socioeconomic and political and, you know, a lot of commentary. Lone Star is more of a direct crime movie, right? With this beautiful history is a breakout role for Matthew McConaughey, Chris Cooper, the great Elizabeth Pena, who's since passed away, right? So he's worked in all these different, you know, Amen Out, great sports movie, right? About the famous black Sox of 1919, so he has such a nimble skill. And rewatching this movie, it's just like the performance he gets out of Angela Bassett. It's so she's natural; so, she's
2: so good in this movie.
1: It's you know, I, yeah, yeah. her and I yeah. think the her and Mary Alice towards the end. Yeah, I have I'm gl- such I'm a, glad an amazing. It's such it, an amazing scene. It together. comes
2: on the heels too. So there's basically quick context. There is a scene she has a. a a few scenes before with uh, I just had his character's name is Flash Phillips. He's the he's the Flash Phillips. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, which is a great name. He's, well, yeah, and
1: he was a, he was a Florida State Seminole who won the Heisman Trophy, right? But then. He got I hurt. think he
2: right. don't doesn't he make the point he like didn't win the Heisman but would have won the Heisman? Oh,
1: I thought, okay, maybe he didn't win it. Because they I guess they they just always say Heisman like he won it, but I guess yeah, you're right. Maybe that's kind of the he got it's, hurt it's, it's or actually
2: something. kind of an yeah, it's actually kind of a cool thing because he like there's a scene. It's actually the scene where he he is reintroduced to Angela Bassett. Um basically I mean, I don't know, should I spoil it? Can I spoil it?
1: Yeah, I mean right. it, well, I mean, if you don't we'll say this, we'll do another five minutes on sunshine state. If you want to skip ahead, I would urge you to watch it. If you have any interest, this is kind of a movie I think is safe from spoilers. Cause yeah. it's just character stuff, but skip ahead five minutes. If, if you don't want to hear any specifics about the end.
2: Basically, um, he, it, it, you know, he ultimately, and what you don't realize until a little later is that he is the reason Angela Bassett basically had to leave because when she was 15 and was sort of like the, uh, like a, had just won in a in a beauty pageant. Basically, they like hooked up, and she got pregnant. And basically, Mary Alice made her like leave. Right. So you, everyone talks about it as if she like couldn't wait to get out and yada yada yada. And and basically, it's revealed that she was sort of like that's half true, but she also sort of was pushed out. Right. And yeah. um, and essentially he is reintroduced to her in this shopping mall um, and de- like doesn't even recognize her. And he's, I, I kind of loved his character cause he, he seems like a really nice guy in terms of like, you know, you're just like, Oh, this guy, like how sad for him. And this is an example of like what sales does really well with all of the characters in the movie. But like, you're introduced to him really the most concretely when he's in the mall where he meets Angela Bassett. But before she shows up, he's talking to some guy, some fan who's like, yeah, Mr. Heisman himself. And he like remarks, he's like, I, well, I never won the Heisman. And he's like, yeah, but you would have, if you didn't get injured. And it's like, right. And he's like, and he's like so hurt by that, you know, like the dudes try to flatter him and you could just see in uh, Tom Wright is the actor. You could see in Tom Wright's face that he's like, just like, Oh God, fuck off. Right. And it's like, Great. It's like a great little way to kind of I think introduce a character and get to know a lot about them with a very very specific amount of information. Uh that said as the movie goes on, he reveals that he's been buying up property all over the town and essentially is in cahoots with with the land developers, right? right? Right. Um and Angela Bass is like the the fuck and his defense is basically like, look, like I'm doing this and I'm trying to basically give these people a better price than they would get from the land developers right so yeah just he, uh, yeah exactly he, he sees it as then you know d- doing them a favor and in that confrontation in that conversation uh, and you get the idea obviously that he's also trying to talk to Angela Bassett in terms of getting her mother Mary Alice to sell and they before she has this great scene with Mary Alice where she essentially confronts her about uh, about kicking her out, essentially. Um, she has this amazing scene with Tom Wright in this parking lot, and I think, you know, it, it, she basically confronts him about all of it, right? About being 15, about getting pregnant. Um, and I think it's a really amazing example of everything that she does well as an actress. Well, you got out as soon as you could.
0: I left because I was 15 and I was pregnant. That's right. You, uh, never let me know. What would you have done? Back then? Uh, my life was kind of falling apart, so I guess I wouldn't have been much help. And you had other girls. Yeah. When I started to show. My mama and daddy sent me to my Aunt Thelma's in Macon. Then I lost the baby. And I just kept going. You lost the baby? Yeah, little boy. I was gonna name him Lee. How'd you, uh, how'd you get by on your own? I lied a lot. I lied about my age. I lied about my experience. I hooked up with anybody who was likely to do me some good. You ever uh, have kids uh, after? You no, know, I can't. There were complications. I was so young. Yeah, well, you must be pretty mad at me. There's a 19-year-old football player. He thinks he's got the world in his pocket. I like to smack him upside his oversized head. I've you know, what left to smack? That was who I was, too. But if we had brought somebody in the world. Oh. My mama is not going to sell her
2: house. Uh, and to your point, Dan, earlier about like, there's in equal parts in, in both of these scenes with Tom Wright and with Mary Alice, there's this like vulnerability on display, but also this like no nonsense putting her foot down, like fuck you mentality to it. And it's great. It's like, it's really great. Well, and
1: look, yeah. and, And, and not to, you know, for those listening who like love black Panther in her queen Ramonda character, you get that too. Right. Like at this high blockbuster level, like she's no, she's like, tough as nails but when she watches her son get the ever-living shit kicked out of him and then get kicked off the waterfall i mean she is in you know she is heartbroken and it's it it may seem easy in a marvel movie you know when there's a million acting you know actors performances going on but let me tell you that is like that type of emotion and that type of on-screen connection, right? Like from viewer to screen on a, on a big movie like that. Not everybody can do that. And when you watch a movie like this, like sunshine state on this like smaller indie level, it's all the more clear, you yeah. know, the different levels that this woman can play at, you know? Yeah.
2: Especially when you don't have, you know, I mean, I think she's a great, it's, it. you know, and I don't know if you credit this to sales or to the, to the actors or to casting or what, I mean, probably all of them. Right. But, but like her, and Edie Falco together as like the two oh my anchors, God, anchors of this movie. It's, it's great. It's like, Edie, like you, Edie couldn't, Falco. you couldn't find a better pairing of, yeah. of actors to put
1: in this like specific yeah. scenario. I may, I, I feel like I've said this on this podcast, right. Edie Falco is one of those people where, you know, she's obviously the Sopranos is the thing she's known for the most nurse Jackie as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, she, exactly. Like she's right up there with Bassett. Like, there are there are few people as good as her like when you watch her really like in the pocket performing like a movie like this like sunshine state it's so impressive i mean that's she's truly one of those people you're like wow what else would you have done with your life like you were put on this earth to do to play other people yeah. and you know like elicit these emotions i just want to say before we get off this um the gentleman who's married to steenbergen who's like having the suicide stuff in sunshine state his name is gordon clapp Yeah, and you definitely know him. He's a great character actor. Um, Been in a million things, uh, so definitely, just wanted to give you know give him the proper name uh, name recognition. You know what show he was in, Connor? Mm. Our boy Eddie Burns' show, Mob City. Oh, really? (laughs) Ed Burns. We'll get to Ed Burns one day. That'll Uh, have to be that has to be like a Christmas special. That me and you just just talk about talk Eddie B.
2: Yeah, we could do that. Sure, why not? Um, Talk about public
1: morals yeah um, <laughs> nobody understands yeah what literally you just a did. joke for two people recording but so just to kind of catch up with Angela Bassett it's kind of funny we were joking you know when we did the poll that uh Gerard Butler won we acted I feel like and I when I wrote it I said that um I said that Gerard Butler would be the topical choice but I actually forgot Angela Bassett is the star of a movie that just got released on Netflix called Otherhood. Yeah, which yeah. we did so, not watch. But that's that's Patty Arquette, Angie B, and everybody's favorite criminal Felicity, Felicity Huffman. Huffman.
2: Yeah, and can I tell you? So my uh, I told...
1: and she's on that show 911. I <laughs> wait, and wait. I've watched. Yeah, she's on that Fox show. Angela Bassett's on that Fox show 911. That Ryan Murphy like. Oh, is that still on? Me- yeah, I think it's like a big hit. It's like yeah, oh, it's okay, like good for her because it was Connie Britton that got replaced with Jennifer Love Hewitt. Um, oh, that feels like and, a weird exchange. Well, I don't think they're the same character, but it's like oh, the okay. the dispatcher, I think, in the okay. show. Okay, and then Peter Krause and Angie B are like cops or first responders or whatever. I watched a couple episodes. No,
2: it's it's Labor Day. Maybe right after this, I'll just I'll pop on a couple episodes. The whole they're selling like, point of that show is no, they
1: take like real crazy. Emergency oh, it's all, response ba- it's all based on Apparently, stuff. That's like crazy. there's like there's like one of the first episodes. There's like a baby in a pipe that they have to get out. Jesus, because like a drug addict, like stuffed a bit. It's disgusting. I mean, it's disgusting. But like, so it's light. It's, you know is what you're
2: saying? It's light. Material. Um,
1: it's light material. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe don't put it on. But anyway, she's on a hit TV show and has a Netflix movie out right now. So I mean, very topical is the point.
2: We kind of mentioned this earlier, but she sort of slipped into that gear. I see slipped in as if it's like a bat. I mean, good for her. She's working on it. You know. But she slipped into this gear of, um, you know, she's like mother figures and, and figures of authority. Right. That's like kind of even, I mean, in this, not even just recently, like, I feel like this has been literally like after sunshine state from like the mid to late 2000s. Well, um,
1: yeah, literally. I mean, literally after sunshine state, right. She, I think plays against Bernie Mac in Mr. 3000 who could forget that classic, she plays against um, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, which is that uh, – uh, that's obviously a what's love got to do with a reunion in Aquila and the Bee, which I remember actually liking. Um, she's in the Tyler Perry movie, Meet the Browns. She plays Biggie's mother in Notorious. In Notorious yeah. She's in the movie Jumping the Broom. She plays Amanda Waller in Green Lantern. Amanda Waller, now played by Viola Davis, right, in, suicide. in Suicide Squad, and probably
2: played by somebody else again in Suicide Squad. I would
1: imagine. Yeah, that, I right? guess, but I do. I mean, Jai Courtney's coming back, so, uh, maybe, so maybe they bring back. Maybe her. Yeah, you know, maybe sure. we get, uh, maybe we get Viola. Maybe get I Angie mean, yeah, back. Swap them again, right? And then it's like, yeah, actually, that'd be kind of cool. Do and it. then, um, she's in a few indies. She's in Chirac. White Bird in a Blizzard, The Aki movie, Black Nativity, The Cassie Lemons movie, we mentioned The Fallen movies. Um and then, you know, now like you said, now it's she's in 911, Otherhood, Black Panther, she'll be in Black Panther 2, she's in Mission Impossible Fall. I would hope she's in the new, Right, I would hope she's in the, it n- would the seem, new Mission Impossible. Yeah,
2: I mean whatever spoilers for Fallen. I mean, we is. lost Baldwin, right? So Yeah, yeah. So like it would seem that they teed her up to be
1: IMF but but are they gonna
2: are they gonna do that again are they gonna have another person from the CIA just move or even like
1: I would like if she has to just be she's like out of the game but comes back in to to help Ethan Hunt sure Um, sure my thing here's my thing in terms of what do we want for Angie in the future I think it's easy I want her to get an Oscar
2: well sure Yes, right. That, like, that, like, no matter what, for sure.
1: Like digging into her filmography, I'm like, get this woman an Oscar. Yeah, no, she's I mean,
2: over overdue for one. You know? um, and
1: I guess she's had a career that doesn't allow for like an obvious, you know, like not enough people are going to see Sunshine State, right? You know, sure. and, like
2: I think that would be different if Sunshine State were the same exact movie and came out now. I think that's a different story because I think, yeah, I think now as yeah. opposed to 2002, we're in a place where like movies that can do really well on like the festival circuit. And I don't know how sunshine state did on the festival circuit back in '02, 2 but um, I feel like a movie like that because of the internet, because of whatever can, can I think gain a little more traction now. So I think, you know, if she were to do another John sales movie that was like really good and gave a great right. performance, um,
1: yeah, I mean, John Sales has not made a movie in a few years. I mean, he famously kind of is a guy who ghost writes a lot of screenplays. Is even credited you know, with some bigger things. You know, movies like Apollo thirteen. Uh, you know, he has his name kind of bandied about. Um, you know, credited for episodes of that show, The Alienist, which is on TNT. Uh, uh, screenplay credit on the Spiderwick Chronicle. Do you know what I mean? Like, so he who definitely makes he <laughs> he definitely makes his money writing right and then the directing is um you know mostly i think a lot of it's out of his own pocket i feel like that's where
2: he probably cashes in those chips a little bit yeah
1: Yeah. Uh, his most recent movie i highly recommend it kind of didn't get a lot of love which i I still kind of bothers me uh his most recent movie is called go for sisters and it stars uh edward james almost and lisa gay hamilton and i would watch it it's a i think it's a great thrilling you know, has that socio political John Sales touch, but isn't is a kind of a missing person, you know, uh, little thriller. Uh yeah, so that's a high recommend for me. But yeah, for Angie, I don't even know. I just want her to like I like her in this role of like Elder Statesman crushing it, but I just want her to get a meaty enough role in a prestige picture to get her, you know, a supporting actress Oscar, really.
2: Yeah, like I would love to see her in um you know, if, if we're if if you were to like you said, if you were to kind of keep her in this sort of gear that she's already in, I would love to see her in like a Michael Clayton esque movie. Oh like yeah, like in, in that kind of a role, like a like a a, a sort of walkie talkie thriller, like legal thriller where maybe she's kind of at, at the end of a rope or something like that. I think something like that would be super compelling. I and like look honestly all these other fucking dudes are getting like late in life action movies. I, I would still watch an, an aging Angela Bassett. Yeah. Like movie. if she, get,
1: if she was up for the physical exertion, you know, and the yeah, choreography, I would, I would love to watch
2: like a, like a late in life, get that strange days action on again. Oh, I would, I would I love it. to watch. That would That love would be it. amazing.
1: All right. Well, let's hope for that. In the meantime, let's celebrate Angie the way that we should. And let's continue, let's hope, hey, maybe she'll get an action scene of Black Panther 2. Someone let, uh, someone let, who's the director of Black Panther? Ryan Coogler. Yeah, someone (laughs) let Ryan Coogler know, um, or or Michael B., or I don't know, somebody. Um, And in the meantime, we're here for Bassett, and Bassett will always be here.
2: And if you can't stand the heat, get out of the universe
1: oh my god that's right the tagline tagline. from the trailer all right rate review subscribe we love you all we'll catch you on the other side